Welcome to the September 14th, 2021 City Commission meeting. I'm not sure it's on yet. I'm looking here at the order. Are we up? Um, yeah, it should be. What are you? Oh, I don't talking about. Sorry. Oh, hang on. We're sorry. That button. There's a whole lot of buttons that have to get pushed around here to make things work. There we go. Okay. Mayor Finkel, I welcome everyone to the September 14th, 2021 City Commission meeting. Before we get going, we'll have Porter O'Neill, our Communications and Creative Resources Director, give us um, some information on the conduct of the meeting. Thank you, Mayor, and good evening, everybody. I just have a few housekeeping items for this Zoom meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for the meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating in, during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen you will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. Please remember to state your name each time you speak for the benefit of those participating remotely. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Finkeldye. Mayor Finkeldye, thank you, Porter. I'll go ahead and take roll call. Vice Mayor Shipley. Here. Commissioner Nanda? Here. Commissioner Lawson? Here. Commissioner Bully? Here. Mayor Finkel Live present. And now before we move to the meeting, we'll have Sherry Wiedemann, our city clerk, talk about the public engagement portion of the meeting. Thank you, Mayor. Um, commissioners and staff, please remember to state your name and title each time you speak. Mayor, when a motion is made, please call on commissioners individually to provide their vote and announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. When public comment is sought on an item, the mayor will first call on those participating in person. Individuals wishing to provide public comment should approach the podium following social distancing and safety protocols. Participants are required to wear a mask but may remove their mask while making remarks at the podium. Please state your name before speaking and comments will be limited to three minutes. The mayor will then call on those participating virtually. Individuals providing public comment via Zoom should use a raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. The raise hand function may appear in different places on your Zoom menu, depending on the device you are using and which version of Zoom you have. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name. Again, comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Mayor Finkelai, thank you, Sherry. We'll now move to the first item on the agenda, which is to approve the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Does the Commissioner wish to amend the agenda, or I look for a motion to approve? Commissioner Ross, the move to approve the agenda. Commissioner Ananda, second. 
Mayor Finkel, aye. There's a motion by Commissioner Lawson, a second by Commissioner Ananda. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. Aye. Passes five to zero. We now move to the consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There'll be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. To begin with, are there any items a commissioner would like to pull off the consent agenda? Seeing none, is there anyone present at City Hall who would like to pull a matter off the consent agenda? There is not, Mayor. Mayor Finkel, I thank you. And does any member of the public on Zoom like to pull a matter off the consent agenda? If so, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature. Mayor, no one has uh, indicated they have any items to pull. Mayor Finkelai, thank you. Oh my gosh. Um, Jane, Tada, yeah, thank you. Um, okay, with no items being pulled off the consent agenda, I look for a motion on the consent agenda. This is Commissioner Arshan. I move to approve the consent agenda as written. It's Commissioner Ananda, I second. Mayor Finkelai, there's a motion by Commissioner Lawson, a second by Commissioner Ananda. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. Aye. Passes five to zero. That takes us to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. To begin with, is anyone present at City Hall like to make general public comment on something not on the regularly scheduled agenda? Uh, there is not, Mayor. Mayor Fingal, I thank you, Sherry. Would any member of the public on Zoom like to make um, general public comment on something not on the agenda? If so, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature and Sherry will call upon you. Chad Osdale. Can you hear me now? Mayor Finkel, I guess. Okay. This is pretty simple. It's pretty much the same thing as I always do. Uh, I was here almost two months ago and asked for the city to tell us what the two method of scoring uh, the evaluations in MSRO is. Uh, we have it in writing on our last evaluations that we are scored using the two method. And I have asked before repeatedly 
what is the two method of scoring the uh, performance appraisal? Never gotten a response. The performance appraisal all departments are given is the only one and only one method of scoring described. And I was curious what department is scored using the performance appraisal process as written? Is there one? What departments are scored using the two method? Is it just MSO? What departments are scored using the three method? Why, since all departments are scored differently, is there not a written performance appraisal for each department? Instead of just giving us one and then telling us verbally with nothing in writing that we're scored using the two method. Because if we're all given the same performance appraisal process and method of scoring and the city allows the departments to score differently, what does that make the performance appraisal but a complete and total untruth? I had the city manager uh, not long ago tell us that it has not influenced our merit raise at all, our appraisal scores, but uh, the second paragraph of the appraisal process dates that that's the primary purpose of the appraisal process, the performance appraisal. So I'm just asking for some answers. I've asked this repeatedly over the past two years and nobody's been able to show me anything in writing what the hell the two process is. Why is it that we're not scored and evaluated as the performance appraisal says instead of the city not following their own policies? Please, if we could get some answers, I'll be back next month to ask again. Thank you very much and have a good evening. Is there anyone else on Zoom who would like to make general public comment? Uh, that's all of the public comment, Mayor. Mayor Finkel, I thank you, Sherry. That takes us to the regular agenda. Um, regular agenda item number one is to consider approving text amendment TA 2079 related to detached dwellings in the RM districts. And it looks like Luke gets to make this presentation. So please go ahead, Luke. Good evening, commissioners. Luke Mortensen with the Planning and Development Services Department. As Mayor Finkeldye just noted, agenda item number one is a request to consider a text amendment TA-20-00079 to the city code and its associated ordinance, ordinance number 9781. This proposed TA would amend the land development code to permit the detached dwelling land use, otherwise known as single family houses, by right in a number of the city's RM multi-dwelling residential zoning districts. These include RM12, RM12D, RM15, RM24, and RMO districts. Um, I'll begin with some history, just as this item has been a process for a number of months. Um, in early 2020, a member of the public initiated a text amendment that would permit detached dwelling use by right in the RM32 zoning district. Um, that is the densest RM district in the city. Planning and Development Services staff 
um, determined at that time that a separate and additional text amendment to include RM12, 12D, 15, 24, and RMO districts should be considered as well. So the first text amendment to allow detached dwelling use by right in the RM32 district, um, which was the item initiated by the member of the public, was considered by the Planning Commission in May of 2020. That text amendment was considered and approved by the City Commission on July 7th of 2020, with the condition that a proposed detached dwelling in the RM32 zoning district obtain an administratively approved site plan. The discussion, the, excuse me, the discussion generally centered around ensuring adequate um, off-street parking and solid waste pickup in the densest of the city's RM districts. The commission felt that the site planning process would give city staff the opportunity to review for those items and would provide an opportunity for neighbor notice. Ordinance number 9781, which again only addressed the RM32 district, um, or excuse me, was yes, was adopted on July 7th of 2020, so just over a year ago. Uh, for a number of reasons, mostly related to COVID and staff capacity, these text amendments um, and their ordinances slowed down, um, but have since been brought back to the City Commission for your consideration. Since the City Commission previously approved TA-20-00022, which um, is what we've just been discussing of the RM32 district, tonight you'll be focusing on TA-20-00079, which addresses those remaining RM and RMO districts. Planning staff, or excuse me, the Planning Commission recommended approval of this item at their July 2020 meeting. Planning staff also recommends approval on the basis that the detached dwelling land use, um, when located on its own platted lot, is generally compatible with the RM12, 12D, 1524, and RMO districts, and will reduce the time and process currently required in some instances to establish this land use. The current land development code requires an approved special use permit for a proposed detached dwelling in those previously listed RM and RMO districts, unless a majority of the block face is developed with the other, um, excuse me, with detached dwellings as well. In that instance, no special use permit is required. Finally, per the advice of the city attorney's office, PDS staff combined um, the code changes associated with both text amendments into a single ordinance. That is a revised ordinance number 9781. This streamlines the code amendment process and will allow the code to reflect both um, discussed text amendments more quickly than if the changes were made with two separate ordinances. The ordinance before you tonight, this revised ordinance number 9781, um, includes the site planning condition discussed at last summer city commission meeting. The land development codes residential district use table will be amended as well as section 20-508, which is the specific use standard section for the detached dwelling land use. To conclude, staff recommends the city commission approve text amendment 20-00079 to the city of Lawrence code chapter 20, permitting the detached dwelling use by right in the RM12, RM12D, RM15, RM24, and RMO districts and adopt on first reading revised ordinance number 9781. This ordinance will return um, to you all for a second reading later this month, and then we'll be ready for publishing. As always, I will do my best to answer any questions um, about either text amendment and the proposed ordinance. Thank you. Mayor Fingal, I thank you, Luke. Do any commissioners have questions for Luke? 
Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, I, it's in your memo here, Luke, but I would like you to clarify for the public. It does seem like at, at first blush, it might be a little um, incongruent that we want density, but we're also allowing single family and um, multifamily zoning. So the question that's in your memo, just for clarification for the public, um, do the proposed text amendments conflict with the density goals and the comprehensive plan? Could you just talk about that for a minute for me? Yeah, so planning stuff, we, we discussed this and we felt it was more in line with uh, the comprehensive plan's goals in having a diverse housing stock, um, making sure that zoning districts match their current land use. This resulted, or excuse me, this was all initiated with a member of the public who was looking to convert um, what had been constructed as a single family home. It had been converted into multiple units. They were looking to bring it back to a single family house. And so that zoning district wouldn't allow for it. So that's kind of how this all came to be. So yes, it it, um, it may seem to be at odds with, with a density goal, um, but I would say it also aligns with our goal of having uh, um, zoning districts that match land uses and, and a varied housing stock. Mayor Finkel, I have other questions for Luke before we open it to public comment. Seeing no questions, we'll open this matter for public comment. If any member of the public who's present at City Hall would like to speak on this matter, please let Sherry know and you'll have three minutes. Uh, Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk, there's no one here that wants to provide comment on this item. Mayor Finkel, I thank you, Sherry. If any member of the public on Zoom would like to provide public comment on this item, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature and Sherry will call upon you. There's no public comment on this item. Mayor Finkel, I thank you, Sherry. I'll bring it back to the commission for comments or discussion. I guess I'll go ahead and installed i'll say you know back i went back and watched the july 7th 2020 meeting and um realized i did vote against it because um i you know the original recommendation was as a matter of right and i think it was a full one vote um, to add the site plan um so i i will also support this recommendation and i think the concerns as luke pointed out that were raised at that july meeting were pretty specific to the rm32 district um, dealing with, um, you know, the way we handle trash enclosures and the way we handle parking. So I do think this is a, is a good move forward. And I think, you know, Vice Mayor Shipley asked a good question, which I think is an important question to ask about density. I, th I think the flip side, especially as we start to look at a new code eventually, you know, there's a movement across the country, and not saying we'll go that way, but going to more of a form-based code where you do have these mixed developments, where you have single family next to duplexes, next to fourplexes, and it goes it goes both ways um, as long as they're all compatible in form. And so, you know, I, I do think that's something we'll continue to look at and certainly something I think that can be done in our mixed use uh, zoning category. So again, I don't see anything inconcurrent about having a single family house next to a duplex and I, th I think it makes sense to allow it um, by right. 
Other comments? Mayor Finkelstein, no comments, motions? This is Commissioner Nono, go ahead and make the motion. Um, I move to approve text amendment TA 20.00079 to the City of Lawrence Code, Chapter 20, permitting the detached dwelling use in the RM12, RM12D, RM15, RM24, and RMO uh, zoning districts and adopt on first reading revised ordinance number 9781. Vice Mayor Shipley, second. Mayor Finkeldye, there's a motion by Commissioner Ananda, a second by Vice Mayor Shipley. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkeldye, aye. Passes five to zero. Luke, thank you very much for that presentation. Thank you all. This, this moves us to regular agenda item number two, which is consider approving the concept design of the public artwork developed at the police headquarters. Thank you, Mayor. This is Porter Arneal, Director of Communications and Creative Resources. And bear with me one second as I share my screen. Uh, so tonight, um, I'm going to offer a little presentation about the history of the public art program um, and just talk about some of the connecting the dots of how we got here tonight. Um, for those who may not be familiar with the program. And then Joe O'Connell, um, the artist who was selected for this project, has also joined us this evening, and he is going to present, um, do a brief presentation and answer any questions that you all might have. Um, so just as a reminder, the Lawrence Cultural Arts Commission was established in the, by the city of Lawrence in 1973 to promote, encourage, and coordinate the artistic and cultural activities of the community through recommended recommendations made to the governing board, governing body of the city and through coordinating endeavors of those groups and organizations which identify themselves as primarily concerned with the artistic environment of Lawrence. In 1981, the Cultural Arts Commission, along with a large group of community members, commissioned the Flame by Lynn Emery, which is the kinetic sculpture which stands in front of City Hall. Sadly, Miss Emery recently passed away, but we gave a tribute to her through social media. And um, actually, Tom Harper had a great article about that, too. Um, in 1986, Resolution 5015 was adopted by the City Commission, establishing the policy of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, governing appropriations and expenditures for the public art program. Um, without going through this, basically this is um, the uh, policy that says that the city commission may um, set aside amount not to exceed 2% of the cost of all capital improvements. And that still remains today with an updated version of this policy. Then in 1987, Jim Patty, working with Eldon Teft and others, established the annual temporary outdoor downtown sculpture exhibition in celebration of sculpture and public art. 2021 marks the 32nd year of this annual public art program, which is, which is shown over 200 artworks in Lawrence, which is certainly a big part of our unmistakability. And for those who don't know, Eldon Teft was a professor at KU in the sculpture department, actually renowned sculptor, um, did tremendous things for sculpture across the country and actually established um, the International Sculpture Center. So not only basketball, but sculpture was established here, thanks to KU. 
Uh, resolution number 7140 was adopted in 2015 and it instructs the Lawrence Cultural Arts Commission to, among many other things, recommend artworks for city purchase. Resolution number 7070 was adopted in 2015 as an update to the city's public art policy and it reaffirms the resolution 5015 from 1986, which I just read about, which is that 2% set aside for public art. Um, just as a reminder, since 1988, when these policies were established, the city of Lawrence has implemented 21 different percent for our public art projects throughout the city, including I just selected a few here that people are probably familiar with or maybe not. Um, just as a reference point, and obviously there's many more. In 2018, in accordance with resolution number 7070, the Cultural Arts Commission requested $340,000 for public art for the police headquarters facility for fiscal year 2019. The F not, FY 2019 budget and CIP was approved by the City Commission. So this was established in the CIP for 2019. The Cultural Arts Commission implemented a national competitive artist selection panel process for the project through a request for qualifications. 39 artists submitted their qualifications. The artist selection panel narrowed the field to four candidates for interviews, which included Gordon Huther of Gordon Huther Studios, Benjamin Ball of Ball Nogs, Joe O'Connell of Creative Machines, and Cliff Garton of Cliff Garton Studios. Ultimately, they selected, um, made the recommendation to the Art Commission to choose Joe O'Connell. The Cultural Arts Commission reviewed the proceedings of the artist selection panel on October 9th, 2019 and voted unanimously to approve the artist selection panel recommended selection of Joe O'Connell of Cre Creative Machines, Inc. Uh, after we had a delay of several months due to the pandemic, the City Commission reviewed and authorized the artist agreement for Joe O'Connell at the November 17, 2020 City Commission meeting. Mr. O'Connell gleaned insights from the artist selection panel um, worked with city and police staff and received feedback from community members before conducting a site visit with staff in November 2020. Um, all of this information led to the development of the proposed concept, which was presented by the artist during two public meetings held virtually on Saturday, June 26. The artist received more feedback from community members and police representatives and presented the current proposal to the Lawrence Cultural Arts Commission on July 14, 2021. The Lawrence Cultural Arts Commission approved the proposal unanimously. So we're here to tonight to present this to you and um, to ask for your approval as well. Let me get out of my screen here. Bear with me a second. And, And I'd be happy to answer questions at this point, or I can turn it over to Joe and he can offer his presentation and certainly he can answer questions as well. I think I have anything, questions for Porter before we turn it over to Joe? Seeing none, Joe, we'd love to hear from you in your presentation. Sure. I don't know how much time you'd like, uh, but I'll, I'll just go quickly. And then if you want me to slow down, I'll slow down. So I did have the pleasure to come uh, even during COVID in November 2020. And I, I although I spent a day in the neighborhood, um, most of the people that I actually spent time with were police officers and staff at the police building under construction. 
So um, we sketched up some ideas. We talked for quite a bit. And we all kind of settled on the grassy area where um, the trail to the future park uh, meets the meets the road. And so um, I'm just going to quickly go through a previous piece I did that has become very popular in our own community. And recently doing a lot of work with colored glass, the idea I came up with was um, the idea of compassion and seeing the world and seeing situations through other people's eyes. So I collected a number of eyes, um, some from Lawrence residents, and I've since uh, had uh, at least one person from Lawrence email me um, wise eyes, uh, former police chief. Um, and then I abstracted from the eyes and made the, a ring of stained glass. And so this concept is that as you are in this pavilion, which marks the intersection of two popular white walking and biking trails, you'd look up through these stained glass sets of eyes. And then at night, there's a... Um, uh, oops, sorry, let me just go ahead to the night views. Um, we're still discussing with parks a small plaza to be built there. But at night, we would be projecting. These wouldn't be the actual patterns. I was hoping to get ideas from the community for patterns. And what I think we're going to do is sort of an abstracted iris uh, of an eye that projects out into the night. I've done a lot of work with projecting uh, laser cut patterns in different uh, shapes. And so at night, we want the area to, to light up to make it a little more welcoming and then as you walk down from the park toward the road um it would be at the end of the trail and you you'd, you'd see it see it here and then just enough light for people to gather underneath let me go back to the eyes because that's you know in in discussions with community members um hang on a second let's just go back this is really just two sets duplicated. I've been waiting to get the approval before going ahead and drawing the rest, but I've collected a lot of eyes. Um, the idea is that central to community policing and being a member of a community and just even being a human being is to see the world through other people's eyes. And so a lot of the eyes that I picked, hang on, let's just go back to those, are well, different races and ages are selected. I mainly wanted, I was looking for something in the eyes, um, alertness, wisdom, weakness, but still openness, all of the ways that people can mix emotions. Like I particularly found some of the older people's eyes, um, you know, a little tired, but still very open and engaging. And I found young people's eyes. This was a young, the next one is a child's eyes. Um, that's a little scared. You know, an adult that's more secure. Um, adults that's a little bit wary. I just wanted to cr capture a wide range. And so we did two public engagement, virtual public engagement pieces. Um, I created an email address for comments and I've gotten a few. And then that email address has been published in the paper as well. There hasn't been as much public feedback as as when I go in person, other than meeting with police officers and staff in November. 
Joe, um, this is Porter Arneal, Director of Communications and Creative Resources. I just want to remind people that this is your presentation from Ju July, I believe, and that you have been, this has been something of an evolutionary process and you've been continuing on design development. So oh, these, yeah. aren't these aren't necessarily the eyes that you plan to use in the piece. This was just you explaining how you right. intended to interpret. I just want to make sure that's clear to everybody. Yeah. You also mentioned a chief, ch ch police chief. Just for clarity, I believe that was a police officer that sent you um, their set yeah, of Yeah, um, let, let me give, me give me a minute to look back. I thought he had been a retired chief uh, from the past, but uh, I'm, it'll take me a little while to dig that up. Um, I, I can find that. Uh, but in, so one concern people had is, won't, won't the eyes look like they're staring down at me? And I think the way to deal with that i we're we've evolved to be very sensitive to eyes so the the trick to making it not looking down is you shift the iris slightly upward so all of these eyes are looking up not looking down we're so sensitive to just millimeters of difference in how the iris in the human eye is that i think it won't be too hard for me to make these as if you're looking through them. And so you enter an archway and then you're surrounded by all these different views. Uh, let me look back through these emails. While I look back, give me just a minute. You know, the, the main theme is empathy, understanding, and seeing through people's eyes. <clears throat> oh, yes, it was... Um, Hang on a second. It was Lawrence Bronson, Sergeant Bronson Starr, 22 years with the Lawrence Police Department and retired. I'm sorry, he was not a chief. He was um, military veteran, firefighter, and then 22 years with Lawrence Police Department. Sent me his face, which I will, I'm going to share his eyes. And I wrote back to him that I see a lot of wisdom in those eyes and would love to make one of those eyes based on that. Let me share you his face. Thank you. And Mayor, if I may also interject, this is Porter Arneal, Director of Communications and Creative Resources. If people are interested, they can look in the agenda packet and the request for qualifications that started this process is in there. Um, that helps clarify that it was decided early on that the artwork would be um, uh, integrated into the park somehow. Um, that one created a great opportunity to sort of create that connection between the community and the police. Um, we also determined that, you know, unlike a rec center or other buildings, police facilities are typically not as publicly oriented. So it seemed to make sense to include something in the park. 
And I think Joe's wisdom on this through the artist selection process, talking to community members and the police department, you know, having a place where people can gather. Um, I realize that this sort of breaks tradition with a, a typical or, or sort of traditional sculpture, um, but it's more of an architectural installment, which of course is consistent. If you look at Joe's um, website, you'll see this very consistent with his work. So I just wanted to share that, that background so that people have a better understanding of how we ended up in this um, situation with this structure. Everything lie. Well, thank you for that presentation. Thank you, Joe, for your work on this. Do commissioners have questions for Joe? Will Porter. Commissioner Larson, I have a couple questions to start with. Could um, somebody tell me exactly where this would be in proximity to this to the police station? Is it east? It is. If you're facing the police building in the street, it would be to the west. Um, there's sort of a berm in front of the police building, and then it goes over to a green space that enters into that park area. There's a, um, a line of trees there, and there, there is a trail that leads up to the park, which is north of the facility. So where, where would people park to go visit this um, installation? They can park. Um, there's there's parking in the police um, parking lot right there. Um, and we also understood from the community that it's a place where runners often meet up um, to go running or walking in the park. Great. And my last question for right now is, since there's going to be so much glass installed in, in this or proposed to be installed in this um, installation, um, how will it hold up to hail? weather hail uh the the glass is really toughened and annealed and it's held with uh, a um really tough adhesive in the worst case it's modular and individual pieces can be replaced um it should be stronger than car windows you know it, a lot of times if there's hail the car will get dented before the windows crack not all hell, not all the time, but being round uh, rather than thin plates uh, and held in a slightly shock absorbing uh, UV cured adhesive, uh, we think that it will be uh, very resistant. We've, we've done this glass outdoors um, in harsh coastal environments like strong sun and salt weather, but to be fair, uh, no hail yet. So you said it should be resistant. Um I mean, will it be, I mean, will it uh, be developed strong enough so it could resist it at least, or is it? It will be a, as least as strong as a car window. Okay. okay, thank you. That's all I have right now. It's a good question. <laughs> this is Commissioner Bullock. Um, what was the attendance like in the uh, community engagement Zoom meetings? It was not very, there, it was not very well attended but it was recorded and then that was posted uh the recording was posted uh and then a, i believe a number of people have have seen that since because people have since contacted me with comments commissioner boley um one of the attendees of the second session was elvin um from the lawrence journal world and that's when that article appeared and i'm appreciative of that because that's actually what 
um, I think drove a lot of attention and people use that email address to get to Joe. So unfortunately, yes, we did not have great attendance. Um, honestly, the first meeting nobody attended and Joe and I had a great conversation. Um, but the second meeting, I'm appreciative that the journal world um, did uh, print the article to share the information. And of course, there's been a recent article um, in the journal world as well. This is Commissioner Ananda. Did you make any changes to the piece based on the feedback that you received? So some of the feedback was to make sure that the eyes don't look down. So I haven't done the detailed design on the eyes. I've been waiting for it to be approved, but my plan is to raise the irises. Another comment was to honor a, uh, a, a male deer that was killed in the area. And so we've worked that design abstractly into the projected pattern so that if you stand in a certain place, you'll see the spreading antlers of, of the light projected at night. Um, and then to include, you know, more Lawrence faces and more faces rather than cover the full spectrum of humanity to be just more sympathetic and empathetic faces. Those were go ahead those were the com those that would summarize the comments okay this is commissioner nana thank you um i think that the some of the comments that i heard were around you know the nature of feeling observed or um um like the watch like we're always watching you being presented through that piece um and um i think that when I was looking at your presentation, I saw only blue and green eyes, you know, which definitely um, implies whiteness of the representatives. So um, I'm hearing you say you might pull back a little bit on the diversity of um, individuals represented, but do you still plan to have a, a diverse group of folks, particularly not just representing men or white? Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I said diversity, I just meant um, um, not like any angry uh, diversity of emotions. So let me just show the faces um, again. Let me go back to screen sharing. There's an equal number of men and women, and there are many races. Uh, there's three Native American, uh, two African American. I'm just trying to do a quick count as I go through. It, it's definitely very diverse. Um, and what I meant by is just not, there were a few faces that were kind of angry. And my point was, well, that's part of the human experience. Hang on a second, let me share. Um, we should include faces that are a little more aggressive, but some, but some of the feedback was, no, we should only have faces that you'd be very empathetic with. So that's what I meant by dialing back on that. And um, that email is still open. Anyone who wants to suggest other faces is welcome to. The only reason that the rendering showed the two faces is it's very time consuming for me to draw the faces. I only, just to show the concept, I only did two and alternated them. So those are just the first drafts. That's where most of the work is, is drawing the faces in glass. I was going to start out, thank you for kind of going into more detail yeah. on that. Do you, do you have thoughts on the comments regarding, um, you know, the feeling of being watched or being told, you know, we're always watching you with the eyes and how do you, do you have a plan for addressing that if that's in the illumination or, or is that just, you know, just an interpretation that some folks have? 
Well, I think it's always open to that interpretation. Um, my own experiments have been if you shift the irises up so that the eyes are looking up, it avoids the sense that they're looking down at you. Commissioner Anand, if I may also, um, under during this process, we've heard, you know, some people with that feedback. And another thing we plan to do, which I believe was su suggested by one of our art commissioners, um, Denise Stone, who was also involved in the uh, selection process, is to add a QR code to the artwork and have a website that helps people understand and explain this um, to make sure that people do understand that this was not meant to be somebody watching, but to the idea of empathy and, and seeing through other people's eyes. Commissioner Nanda, thank you for that. Mayor Fingal, I have questions before I open it up to public comment. Seeing no questions at the moment, this is a public hearing item. If any member of the public who is present at City Hall would like to speak on this item, please let Sherry know and she'll call upon you. Uh, there's none here in the commission room, Mayor. Mayor Fingal, I thank you, Sherry. And if any person on Zoom would like to speak on this item, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature and Sherry will call upon you. Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers. Um, I, I like the idea of an eye looking at us. I kind of like that interpretation. Just because the cops, they are the eyes of like Big Brother or whatever. I mean, if cops, I mean, they watch us, don't they? They, they surveil us. So why not have some truth, you know, put a little truth in the art that we're displaying by the cop station. But other than that, I, I, I'm okay with this, but just wanted to share that. Thank you. Mayor, this is Porter Arneal, Director of Communication and Creative Resources. A couple of people have been chatting that may not have heard my um, introduction, but I want to tell people that the chat is, is disabled for this. Um, but I certainly will capture those chats, a couple of suggestions, and make sure that I pass those on to um, the artist. And or if they'd like to speak, um, please feel free to do so. And is there anyone else who would like to make public comment on this item? You can either um, uh, use the raise your hand feature or you can turn on your video to indicate you wish to comment. Jane Kutita. Hi, this is Jane Kutita and my comment for the artist was, um, do you have any people that are dis, you know, disabled or handicapped, like blind people's eyes or person maybe who only has one eye or, you know, that part of it of humanity, too? I think that's a great that idea. In the world is, is different. And it's part of seeing through the eyes of another. It's a great idea to include. So thank you. I believe that's all the public comment, Mayor. Mayor Fingalai, thank you. I'll bring you back to the commission for discussions, comments, motions. Mayor Fingalai, any comments? I guess I would 
say that, uh, you know, I sometimes on the commission, you feel like you're qualified to do certain things and sometimes you don't. And um, Outlook is not my, uh, um, where I feel most qualified, but what I do appreciate about this is that um, it has sparked some discussion. And indeed, as people have said, I think, um, you know, in most cases, Outlook is in the eye of the beholder. And, and I think this has the ability to, to spark conversation and also spark, you know, pleasure. And so, you know, I'm, I'm excited about this. And Joe, thank you for your work on this. Thank you for the opportunity. This is Commissioner Larson. And, um, you know, I appreciate Mayor saying that art is in the eyes of the beholder. Because the first time I looked at this, I was very concerned about, it just felt to me like a, a projection of surveillance. Um, and so that's, I was, I'm having a hard time getting that out of my mind. And, and the idea of having a QR code to explain it, um, I think that's a good idea. However, I, you know, I, I'm having a hard time getting past the fact that it just seems to me like this is an idea of where the police are watching us. And I don't think that sends a really good signal. I'm also very concerned about the minimal amount of community engagement that seemed to occur with this. And I know it wasn't for a lack of trying, but um, I would like to see much more community engagement on a project of this size um, before moving forward on it. May I think I have Comments? Vice President Play. Yeah, uh, I appreciate, Mayor, you bringing up um, that art is an eye of the beholder, but also is supposed to make you think. And um, we can't, I don't know. Some of the things I like about this are, for example, uh, there's it lights up an area that that's pretty dark, but that we know that runners um, and uh, trail users are at. Um, I also like the idea that, in theory, the police also use that for trails and running and exercise, and they will also be seeing this art um, consistently. I think art is good when you can see it from different ways. So indeed, one could say, oh, well, it's about surveillance. But you could also say it's about how we're responsible to each other. We all see each other. Um, and I guess you could even flip it and say that we're watching the police. So if you, you, can, you can make it do whatever you want. Um, that's, that's the joy of art is that it requires that we be critical thinkers. And, um, I, I just, I just want to provide a, even a different viewpoint that, um, we need to be critical thinkers and art provides that opportunity for us. This is Commissioner Bowling. Um, I appreciate the work that's gone into this, and it's definitely generated some conversations, although there's not a lot of public engagement even in this meeting tonight. 
Um, I'm concerned about the level of public engagement in this. And, uh, you know, what's been communicated to me generally by the public is concern over content, which we've talked about, and cost, which we really haven't talked about. Um, you know, I, I think having an extended community conversation about um, this would, would be uh, perhaps productive. Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, one thing I do think is interesting is the way the 2% is used. Um, certainly uh, someone from the community uh, brought this up to me. Um, Porter, could you tell us how that cost uh, or tell us how that um, is delineated? Porter O'Neill, Director of Communications and Creative Resources. I actually reached out to Jeremy Wilmoth because um, I thought we might need some help understanding how that works. I'm hoping Jeremy can help explain. Um, my answer is that it was included in the 2019 capital improvement uh, project budget, but beyond that, I'm not sure exactly the mechanics of all of that. So if Jeremy can help, I appreciate it. Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Um, the the belief is that uh, this art installation will become an asset at the uh, police facility and thus eligible to be depreciated over time and um, available for uh, public debt financing. Uh, Commissioner Arson, just to kind of expound on that, how do you how do you come up with the three hundred sixty thousand dollars, or what about three hundred eighty thousand dollars? Porter O'Neill, Director of Communications and Creative Resources. Um, as part of my job, um, I go through the CIP and look for eligible projects. Um, the police facility at the time, um, whatever the construction estimated construction cost was, three hundred forty thousand dollars was at that time the um, two percent equation which then I share with the um, Lawrence Cultural Arts Commission and they made that recommendation to the city commission for that budget. Thank you. Mayor I for your, I'm thinking back to your um, presentation and, and certainly I think there's a debate that for future projects could be had on the 2%, but I believe we voted on this 340,000 three, four, five times, you know, going forward. And so, um, you know, I'm certainly open to the discussion going forward, but I think this one is, has been voted on and approved on multiple occasions. Uh, is that true, Porter? Yes, I agree. And also the artist contract. And, um, you know, that's part of the challenge we face here is that it has been delayed quite a long time because of the pandemic as well. So I'm sensitive to the artist who's been under contract and has only received one his initial payment um, and is certainly eager to get started on this and try to finish out the project before the end of the year when his contract will end. Um, certainly we can extend that. I don't mean to make that uh, you know, an end point, but that's the, the desire at this point. Mayor Finkelai, you know, I'd also, um, you know, on the idea of public engagement, um, you know, again, I think it's an ongoing conversation we've been having about how best to have public engagement. 
you know, our traditional model of public engagement is, you know, inviting people to meetings and having committee meetings and then inviting them to the city commission. And if we're really lucky, we get an article in the paper, um, which this one has had two articles in the paper, um, had a couple committee meetings as well as invitations, as well as emails. And, um, you know, I, there might be, a, again, a future time to de- to debate about whether or not our public engagement is working when we use that model or if there's a, a better model to use. But um, I can't imagine that, um, you know, if we offer another meeting or have another email address or whatever, that we're going to get um, any more opportunity for people to speak than we have in these in these variety of meetings. So, um you know, I, I'm comfortable that we have had um, the public engagement and made that offer, and I think um, you know I'm ready to proceed with with this moving forward. Other comments? This is Commissioner. I would just say, you know, I am hearing the artist say that he's open to continuing to receive that comment and to incorporate that into the work. Um, I feel like there is when we're talking about art, you know, um, I think about <laughs> how how it is like Commissioner or Vice Mayor Shipley said it's to to bring dialogue, and um, I am certainly not an artist, but and excuse my dog, sorry. Um, I was a film major, um, and and certainly people are very opinionated about that as well, um, and we don't we don't get to to choose that if we're asking folks to engage our community and um, reflect back. So I think that there's, there's like multiple layers to those eyes is, you know, it's someone else's view of our city through our city's eyes, which I think is really interesting as well. Um, So while I do think that there, there is a lack of public engagement for sure. um, I think that there is also space for letting this continue that public engagement through the process of erecting this sculpture. Mayor, if I may, um, this is Porter O'Neill, Director of Communications, Creative Resources. One thing I'll say is that, you know, again, the, the pandemic affected um, our ability to get out to the public. Um, we tried to delay meetings for that purpose. With that said, I am so appreciative of Joe um, in the sense that the, the few people that have reached out to me with concerns and thoughts, I honestly directed them straight to Joe. And I know that Joe has been in direct communication with several members of the community for that purpose. So, you know, yes, I wish we had well attended meetings, that type of thing. But in lieu of that, I just honestly sent people straight to Joe and said, please talk to him, um, get his feedback, tell him your concerns. And he has been very open to that. Um, so, you know, I just want to add that, you know, level uh, that we, we did our best to address that every way we could. And anybody who reached out had access directly to the artist. Mayor Finkelai and, and Joe, did I understand that you would continue to receive feedback and continue to receive eyes to, to be included or whatever? Um, I've re- yeah, I've been in touch with people as recently as yesterday. Um, and that email address is still active if anyone wants to, or you could just look for Creative Machines online and send it to through the contact, my, my company. Um, 
I'm easy to find. Anyone else who wants to talk, I'm open to it. And I've t- every suggestion has been incorporated. I mean, you know, and no one's made unreasonable suggestions. Well, somebody wanted a water fountain. I said, well, that's up to the parks department. <laughs> but um, every suggestion I listen to, it's my job as a public artist. Mayor Pinkalayato, comments? Motions? Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, I move to approve the concept design of the public artwork developed for the police headquarters facility as recommended by the Lawrence Cultural Arts Commission. Commissioner Nande, second. Mayor Fingalai, there's a motion by Commissioner, I mean, Vice Mayor Shipley, a second by Commissioner Ananda. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Before I vote, I just wanted to, um, just to appreciate, show appreciation for Joe, our, our artist that we have chosen. Um, I really appreciate the work that you put into this. And I know you've had many discussions, I know with the Cultural Arts Commission. Um, and I like the, concept of what you're trying to do i just um, can't get um past this feeling of what the eyes represent at least to me and what i've heard from various community members and i am still concerned about the community engagement part my preference would be to send it back to the cultural arts commission but since we have a motion on the floor i'm going to say nay commissioner bowling aye mayor finkel aye passes four to one Thank you very much, and we look forward to you continuing involvement and in, in getting this project underway. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we are now, that takes us to our work session. The work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. As a general practice, the commission will not make decisions on items presented during this time. Rather, they will refer the items to staff for follow-up if necessary. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Each person will be limited to three minutes. And our first um, work session item is the Live Well Youth Tobacco Prevention presentation. And I know there's several speakers here to make a presentation on that item, but I'm not sure who's going to lead us off. That would be me. Uh, my name is Allison Kuhn. Going to uh, share my screen here. All right, um, thank you. Um, my name is Allison Kuntz and I'm here representing Livewell Douglas County. I am the current Tobacco-Free Living Work Group Chair. Also presenting a little bit later is Afton Jameson and she is the Livewell Douglas County Chair elect. Uh, we also have some community partners to answer questions if anything might be out of the scope of well, County. Um, so just a little on Live Well Douglas County. We are a volunteer coalition. So anyone can join our coalition. We have individuals, organizations, um, agencies, and we are primarily supported by uh, Lawrence Douglas County Public Health and K-State Research and Extension. 
um, we really are just working to improve the health of Douglas County citizens. So that is our main goal in a variety of ways. So thank you so much for allowing us to present this evening. We've compiled some information from various cities all across the nation and are presenting some best practices to you. Um, this is meant to be sort of an educational session and just informational and allow you to move forward with your work. Hey, Mayor Vigla, Allison, we all seen both your slides, like the regular slide, the next one. I don't know if you can oh. make that to one, one big slide for ease. Sorry about, oh, oh, nope, not that one. That didn't help. Um, let's see. Let's see. Well, good times. Uh, well, I might. Allison, at the um, at the top, at, this is Porter Arneal in the city commission room. At the top of your um, right near where your cursor. Yes. See if that helps. There you go. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate well, that. Thank you so much. All right. So we just want to kind of start out um, by addressing the issue at hand. So we know that 95% of all adult smokers began that behavior of smoking before the age of 21. So typically at a young age, we know that four out of five adult smokers um, became regular smokers, daily smokers, again, before that age of 20. And really why that is important to note is that the younger a person is when they start using tobacco, the more likely they are to become addicted. So we want to address that. Um, we also know part of the issue is that vaping is starting to reverse some of the progress that has been made in youth tobacco use. In 1997, about one in 14 smoked. And in 2018, some progress was made and uh, about one in 20 of those teens smoked. Um, we do know right here in Kansas that in 2019, one in four Kansas high schoolers regularly used at least one tobacco product. So kind of moving in the wrong direction. And typically that one um, product was vapes or e-cigarettes. So those are typically youth tobacco users' product of choice. So currently we know that about one in five are using vaping and e-cigarettes. And just for your reference on this page, I want to point out um, if you aren't familiar possibly with what um, an e-cigarette or these heated tobacco products, what they look like, um, this is sort of a, a rendition of what they look like, but essentially it's sort of like a, a jump drive or a storage drive, just a, a little bit longer. Um, so that's just to kind of give you a little reference when we're speaking about this, what, what that looks like. But we also know right here in our community in Douglas County, we know that youth, um, the average age for youth to try a vape product is 14.3 years of age. This is going to be an eighth grader, um, an eighth grade middle school student who turned 14 in eighth grade. 
We also know that about 44.3% of youth adult current e-cigarette users were never smoking before they tried those e-cigarettes. And we also know that young people who, uh, who ever tried e-cigarettes in 2018 were eight times more likely to be using cigarettes one year later. So um, for a lot of youth, e-cigarettes and vaping sort of lead into cigarettes. We also want to point out in, in this time where we're thinking a lot about COVID, um, some of those COVID-19 concerns along with vaping. So vaping is linked to substantially increased risks of COVID-19 among teenagers and young adults. And we know that of those um, young people who were tested for COVID-19, the research found that those who vaped were five to seven times more likely to be infected than those who did not use e-cigarettes. So again, that is just um, pointing out those issues that COVID-19 has on the lungs and that vaping also. Afton Jameson here. I'm the chair-elect for LiveWell. Um, thank you, Allison. I think she's sharing the screen, so she may have to control my slides as I speak. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit, if everybody can hear me, talk about some equity considerations and concerns that public health officials have from the tobacco industry, the tobacco products themselves. So starting here, it says tobacco companies have put a lot of money and effort into targeted marketing of youth, Black, African-American communities, individuals with mental illness, low-income communities, American Indian and Indigenous communities, and LGBTQ individuals. Um, the result from this predatory target is that these communities are proportionally affected, disproportionately affected by the effects of tobacco products. Um, little, dive in a little bit more of each individual, individual community, talking about the Black and African American community. Um, the tobacco industry has historically targeted this community by posting ads for menthol products in Black neighborhoods and in targeted magazines. Um, they've also been known to sponsor culturally targeted events. As a result of this, we now have 95% of Black teens who smoke use menthol and nearly nine in 10 black and African-American adults who smoke use menthol cigarettes. Um, indigenous high schoolers have the highest cigarette use rate of any other race um, or ethnicity. They are currently at 16.2% compared to just 5.8% overall, so over triple. And then more than one in five indigenous adults smoke cigarettes. African-American adults at 21.6% and non-Hispanic multiracial adults at 36.5% report a higher smoking prevalence than the Kansas average among all adults, which sits at 17.3. And then nearly one in three adults in Kansas that earn less than $25,000 smoke cigarettes, which is significantly higher than adults that earn $50,000 or more at 11.3%. Education levels. So this one is shocking. Kansas adults with less than a high school education have much higher rates of smoking. They're at 38.1% compared to college graduates at only 6.3. And then mental health. One in three Kansas adults with poor mental health smoke. 
which is more than double the prevalence of smoking among Kansas adults with poor mental health at 15%. One in four, which is, comes to 26.8% of Kansas adults living with a disability smoking Kansas, which is significantly higher than the prevalence of smoking among Kansas adults living without a disability at 13.9. Thanks, Afton. Um, we want to point out some environmental considerations. So we know that um, vapes and e-cigarettes are only used for a predetermined amount of time. So if you think back when I showed you that picture at the beginning, so the way that they're made, there's about 400 puffs or 20 to 40 cigarettes worth of vapor before they become trash. And there's current research that's happening um, that suggests just like the cigarette butts that you see everywhere, that you see littered in the streets and sidewalks and parks, that a lot of these e-cigarette capsules or those pods for vapes are often littered in the exact same way. So it also becomes an environmental issue. So some things that cities have done to address some of those health um, inequities that Afton had brought up. The Surgeon General uh, does recommend including e-cigarettes in smoke-free policies. Um, that is going to help maintain that current standard for clean indoor air and the potential for kind of renormalizing tobacco product use. It also helps to prevent that involuntary exposure to nicotine and other aerosolized emissions from e-cigarettes. We know that those uh, particle concentrates from e-cigarettes are very similar to traditional cigarettes and those e-cigarettes can help um, unfortunately to degrade that air quality and again, puts bystanders at risk of secondhand smoke. Some of these cities have said, well, the expectation of having a clean indoor air ordinance is that the air is clean and we can't guarantee that uh, with vaping and e-cigarettes. So some cities have looked at um, adding that to their local indoor air ordinance. Some other ways to address, address health equity uh, is through density and proximity limitations. So those can be limits on licenses for retail products, tobacco products. So if that's going to be proximity to youth-oriented facilities, so schools, um, boys and girls clubs, schools, things like that, that are, are youth-oriented, and then proximity to other tobacco retailers so that there isn't um, extreme density. Um, some cities, again, limited um, license for new tobacco retailers. So some of the information about that density and proximity. So um, having density and proximity of tobacco retailers uh, does increase smoking behaviors, including the number of cigarettes that are smoked every day. And they're finding that this is particularly happening in neighborhoods that are experiencing poverty. Um, we also know that uh, density of tobacco retailers near adolescents' homes is associated with increased youth smoking rates and initiation of non-tobacco product use. And adults smoke, adult smokers are likely to have a harder time quitting when residential proximity to tobacco retailers is closer and density is higher. Hence, if it's close to, to where you are, you're going to be able to get that a lot easier. 
There was a study that happened in New York and also our friend state here, Missouri, right next to us, um, that found a greater um, tobacco retailer density in low-income and African-American neighborhoods. Some of those, again, benefits to the uh, density and proximity limitations for that policies to reduce tobacco retailer density. They've been shown to be effective. Um, they can reduce or eliminate inequities in the location and distribution of tobacco retailers. Another thing that some cities looked at was updating their definition of a tobacco product. So again, that some cities looked at their current policies and just updated um, the definition. Um, the good thing that worked out for many of these cities is that when they update this, um, does not preclude things that are approved by the FDA for tobacco cessation. So if someone is wanting to quit and able to use a device for that, then that is not included in this. So anyone that wants to quit with support is still able to do that. Now we're gonna cover opportunities to address health equity um, based on some of the statistics that I gave you in previous slides. So restricting sales to individuals under the years of 21s of age, um, enforcement through retailer compliance checks and fines for retailers, um, just to make it clear, no prosecution or fines for the youth, but rather just the retailers only. Um, here's some more benefits of the Tobacco 21 law. So other previous T21 laws that have passed in other areas um, shows exposure to T21 laws have yielded a 39% reduction in the odds of recently smoking in the last 30 days and 39% reduction in the odds of lifetime consumption of at least 100 cigarettes among youth from the ages of 18 to 22 who have ever tried combustible or e-cigarettes. Some opportunities to address health equity in regards to the flavor ban, which, which a lot of municipalities are looking into. Um, stats have shown that 97% of youth who use flavors, and then 77.9% of youth and 90.3% of youth under the age of 25 indicate that they choose to use e-cigarettes because, quote unquote, they come in flavors they like. an evaluation of New York City's law, which prohibits the sale of all flavored tobacco, excluding menthol, which some have looked into doing, it indicated that there were benefits to it. So it had a result of the law. Youth had a 37% lower odds of ever trying flavored tobacco products and 28% lower odds of ever using any type of tobacco. Historically, menthol has been excluded from flavor bans. Um, but to address the health equity and disparities in the tobacco use among Black and African Americans due to targeting them from tobacco companies, model ordinances are now including menthol in their flavor bans. Okay, so the Kansas State Legislature will be considering a bill to pass Tobacco 21 statewide, likely spring of 2022, to come under compliance with the federal law that passed in the at the end of the year of 2019, and they're doing so to continue receiving their SINAR funding. Um, this creates an opportunity to include a local preemption for flavor bans. Um, we do have Representative Christina Haswood, as well as the American Heart Association here. They're present this evening in this call this meeting 
to answer any questions or concerns regarding the state legislature and what's been going on for that bill. So benefits of tobacco retailer license and compliance checks. Um, so a review of tobacco products use among 11th and 12th graders across 14 California political jurisdictions found that youth living in just four jurisdictions with the strongest tobacco retailer licensing ordinances had lower odds of ever using cigarettes or e-cigs, lower odds of initiation of e-cigs at follow-up and lower odds of past 30-day use. Um, looking at something a little bit closer, Columbia, Missouri, which is a similarly sized um, college town in the Midwest where Mizzou is, they passed their Tobacco 21 law in December of 2015. They then began compliance inspections in February of 2020. After showing their, um, after starting those inspections, which were done by their health department, they saw a significant decrease in retailer violations once the checks began. So a local policy would give teeth to a state ordinance allowing our community to have the funding to do compliance checks here. Okay. And some more equity considerations and recommendations to consider. So um, these are research supported opportunities just to improve equity in, in the Lawrence area. So don't include laws that punish the purchaser user, or the possessor, which are often known as pop laws. Put the accountability on the retail business, not the clerk. Include menthol in any flavor bans. Provide an exemption for the use of tobacco for religious, spiritual, or cultural ceremony or practice. And funds from violations could be used toward improving mental health services and resources to address the underlying issues that may be associated with tobacco use and or improving cessation service to those that would like to quit. Um, another option is vesting enforcement authority for commercial tobacco control laws and public health or other non-police officials. And so we're happy to answer any questions that you may have. This wraps up our presentation. Um, like I said, present with us tonight, we have various subject matter experts that may speak to specific questions or concerns that you may have, but we are happy to take those. Mayor Fingalai, thank you for that presentation. Questions from commissioners? Yes, this is Commissioner Larson. Um, can I get a clarification on our ordinance about smoking inside? Does it include vaping in that ordinance that it's not allowed inside? I thought it did, but I'm not for sure. Should I'll answer that. No, it, 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 to my knowledge, it currently does not. I believe that passed in 2004, and um, a lot of people are looking to just simply amend those, those previous laws to, with the inclusion of vaping. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, City Attorney Tony Wheeler, I would um, confirm that that is correct. So Commissioner Larson, one more question. So there's a federal law right now in place and you had indicated that state's looking at a potential law um, how does a federal law uh, impact the in Kansas? And is it not um, enforceable in Kansas? The federal law. Hi, this is um, Assistant City Attorney Maria Garcia. We do have a federal law that was signed um, and made effective at the very end of 2019. It doesn't make state law 
um, ineffective. It's just a different law. The question is the enforcement mechanism of it. That is a matter for a federal agent or a federal official U.S. attorney's office to prosecute. But if the city wanted to take on prosecution of Tobacco 21 laws or handle it on a local matter, we would need a local ordinance for it. Thank you. Um, this is Laura McCulloch, and I just wanted to also say that currently there is not any federal level enforcement within Lawrence or Douglas County, um, and there's not state level enforcement of um, those individuals that are buying that are between the ages of 18 and 21 because there's not currently a tobacco 21 law for the state of Kansas. So, um, you know, there would be an opportunity then if something were to be passed for there to be local enforcement to um, inspect the retailers within our uh, city. Mayor Fingledye, um, and I don't know, I see Representative Haswood on here, but could someone talk about clarify for me what the legislature is going to take up and the likelihood of that passage and then what that might mean for anything we do on the local level. Hi, this is Representative Christina Hazard here. It's so great to be here and see you all here today virtually. Um, so with the Tobacco 21 law, I believe it's still in committee and I think Kiri um, can correct me on this. Um, I believe there was a hearing in federal and state committee affairs, but it was um, postpone, I believe. Um, I just wanted to give a little more background on um, preemption bills in the state of Kansas. Um, there was currently about eight tracked um, in this context of preemption is kind of when the state legislature overpowers local control. Um, there was about majority of them were public health bills um, that came through. Um, three of them ended up passing. Uh, most notably is, you know, here in the city of Lawrence, we are um, really great leaders in the state of Kansas. I'm so proud to be a community member here, to be born and raised here. Um, but we're also so lucky to have community members who push us to strive for change. Um, but with that, um, it kind of gave us a uh, target on our backs for something like SB 24, which was a bad energy bill. Um, that was pretty much in direct response to the city's passing the resolution, um, especially the elements of the Green New Deal, um, where we want to take strides um, but at the state level. They might want to not go forward or take some baby steps. Um, and, uh, you know, some of these are just some bad preemption bills. Just wanted to emphasize on that. But I think Carrie can talk a little bit more about the Fed and state bills. Yeah, and actually that bill did come out of Fed and State. Uh, it is sitting below the line uh, awaiting debate by the full House chamber. The bill number is House Bill 2340. And there was a broad preemption amendment attempted in that House Fed Federal and State Affairs Committee um, that was brought by the majority whip. So everyone in the caucus is taught to follow his lead. So it even carries more weight than the usual attempt, I would say. And uh, the vote on the tobacco preemption amendment for that T21 bill that would align uh, state law, allowing uh, the state attorney general's office to enforce the federal law. Um, that amendment that was brought was very broad tobacco preemption language. 
that would virtually you know, disallow communities from any tobacco policy. Now, that said, we don't feel in our work, the American Heart Association's work across the nation uh, on tobacco retail licensing issues and on flavor elimination issues, we simply have not seen like a concerted tobacco industry effort to fight tobacco retail licensing. It is a natural part of business that businesses have to have licenses to uh, provide haircuts in a community sometimes, uh, you know, sell liquor, a variety of businesses have licensure requirements. So it's just not, you know, combated the way that a flavor elimination policy is met, which is why I sent a letter uh, to you, Mayor, and to the rest of the commissioners here uh, supporting uh, the recommendation that tobacco retail licensing is probably safe, quote unquote, to move forward on at this point in time. But that federal or that flavor elimination piece, you know, that would just be a different kind of fight and it could potentially uh, put at risk, uh, you know, future flavor elimination work until we get that tobacco 21 bill kind of over the line is where, is where we're at with that. And I think it's a great uh, starting point, too, to have the conversation in your community about tobacco, uh, you know, especially youth prevention and the health equity components of it. And even more so than the preemption threat, I would say, you know, because local communities shouldn't use the threats of the state legislature to prevent them from pushing forward good health policy in communities. Certainly, it's worth that fight, I think. Um, but even more so than the preemption threat at this point in time, you know, I think it's a good idea to have that full community outreach, you know, is listening to your presentation about the outreach with your art in your community and everything else. I think that same kind of outreach needs to occur uh, within the community, especially by disproportionately affected communities before flavor elimination discussion uh, occurs. And I'm happy to answer any specific questions you may have. And I want to thank Representative Haswood for being here this evening as well and lending her voice to this discussion. Mayor Fingaldi, so a couple follow-ups to that. Um, and I agree that we um, you know, might not want to uh, um, you know, react to the preemption, but I guess I want to just get some parameters there. Do you think the broad amendment that was made, would that have prevented local authority, local uh, municipalities from um, doing their own T21 and leave it at the state level, or would it have allowed us to do that as well? It would virtually disallow uh, all tobacco policy at the local level. Uh, I did run that by the Kansas Association of Counties for confirmation. Um, however, and, and it did fail. So to be clear, also, the amendment did fail. It just failed by one vote. So it was a little bit closer than what we've seen in the past. Uh, you know, but again, I, I really don't think the licensure issue would cause a turn heads, you know, and, and cause uh, uh, deep defensive work by the tobacco industry the way that the flavors elimination piece would. Mayor Finkelai, on a related, I guess, but different question, again, you guys are the experts on this. I, I saw something in the 
I think in the newspaper about the FDA was going to make a ruling on vaping and then they put it off. And, and there was a possibility at least that it would have some limitations on flavor and other types of vaping. But anyone who could explain that to me and when that might happen, I'd be interested in. You know, I cannot recall when the deadline was extended to, but their initial uh, market applications, you know, approval or denial of many of these flavored products was released this week. And it was met with uh, disapproval by the American Pediatric Association. They used very strong language against the fact that it didn't go far enough. Uh, and the Heart Association similarly feels like that policy didn't go far enough. Because they essentially, while it sounds like a big number that they weighed in on, it was essentially 1% of the products that are on the market currently uh, and leaving the biggest sellers like Jewel on the market, which is another great reason and compelling argument for this to be a local control issue that you can't wait for the federal government to do X, Y, or Z uh, because we can't be guaranteed with the history of tobacco in our nation that uh, you know they're going to do the right thing and protect public health because tobacco is powerful and it kills you know more people uh, than virtually anything else preventable uh, in this country in your community. Mayor, this is Sherry Reedham and the City Clerk. I just want to remind everyone if you could please when you speak each time you speak um, state your name if you're responding to a question and um, title or entity that you're representing thank you yes and i didn't properly designate myself earlier uh, my name is carrie rinker uh, and i'm with the american heart association i'm their government relations director for kansas mayor finkel i again just so i understand i guess what i had read earlier I thought earlier in the week was that the FDA had delayed making the decision. Did they later come out with a decision and it's not as good? Do they still have a decision to be made? I can't. They only made a decision on a very small. Yes, sorry. Carrie Rinker, American Heart Association. Uh, I'm the state government relations director for Kansas. They came out with a decision on just a small uh, percentage of the products. We're still waiting. And I know Ameri uh, Sarah Prem with the American Lung Association is present here this evening as well. And we were speaking about this earlier, so she might even have uh, the dates in front of her as to when that the full decisions will, will be released. Yeah, and yes. uh, this is Kim Richter. And it, oh, I'm sorry, Sarah, you go ahead. I, I was going to say this is Sarah Prem with Tobacco Free Kansas Coalition, and I do not have that date. Uh, but the, but to echo what Carrie said, they basically didn't rule on 99% of the products. Yeah, yes, and this is Kim Richter from KU Med. What they delayed was any decision on Juul, which uh, controls 40% of the vape market. Mary Fingal, I thank you for answering my questions. Are other questions um, from commissioners? Mayor Fingal, while we're thinking of questions, we can go ahead and open it to public comment, and then we can bring it back for questions and discussion. So we'll go ahead and open it, this to public comment. If any members of the public are present at City Hall and would like to speak on this item, please let Sherry know and she'll call upon you. There's no one present in the commission room, Mayor. 
Mayor Finkel, I thank you for letting me know that. If any member of the public on Zoom would like to make a comment on this item, please raise your hand using your raise your hand feature and Sherry will call upon you. Ashley Bloom. Hi, my name is Dr. Ashley Bloom. I'm a family physician who works in East Lawrence at East Heights Family Care. And I see this as a great opportunity for us to lead the state as far as youth tobacco prevention. I see alarming numbers of increasing vape among my young patients, including teens who are in high school, as well as college age students. And a lot of them don't even consider vaping to be true tobacco use and that they are unaware of the future risk that this holds for future health outcomes for them. I'd be happy to answer any questions um, regarding how this might impact our, our community as well from a primary care perspective. Is there any other public comment on this item? If so, please raise your hand or turn on your video. There's no other public comment, Mayor. Mayor Fingalai, thank you. We'll bring it back to the commission um, for questions and comments. This is obviously a study session, so we're just um, going to possibly direct staff um, at the end or just have a discussion, but questions or comments? Yeah, this is Commissioner Larson. I had I just needed a point of clarification from Carrie, Carrie Rinker. Um, you had spoke something about, and I might have gotten this completely wrong, that's why I need clarification. Um, something to the effect of the, the tobacco re retail licensing would be a good thing for Lawrence to look at. Did I get that wrong? Question directed at me, Commissioner. Um, Commissioner Larson, yes, Carrie, that was to you. Okay. Carrie Rinker, uh, American Heart Association State Government Relations Director. I had a loud car got, go by right when you were speaking, so I wasn't sure. Um, but I think you were just asking about the tobacco retail licensure, whether it was a good time to, to do that. I'm sorry, I didn't catch it all. Yeah, yeah Commissioner Larson, yeah, that you had, you had made a statement, something to that effect. And so I just wanted to make sure I heard that correctly. Maybe you could clarify it a little bit more for me. Well, currently we have state tobacco retail licensure. Uh, and so your consideration of a local tobacco retail licensure uh, would simply strengthen the ability you know, of your community to ensure that tobacco products are kept out of the hands of youth uh, through your own compliance program that's been presented and suggested uh, this evening. Um, currently the state tobacco retail licensure uh, to give you an idea of the kind of, of uh, resources that are put into that enforcement, uh, it's, it's not nearly strong enough. Uh, it's $25 to sell tobacco products for a two-year license. It hasn't been raised since 1972, uh, which is the year I was born. So I know that's a long darn time. Um, and I like to joke that uh, my license for having backyard chickens in Wichita, Kansas is more expensive than the retail licensure to sell tobacco, deadly tobacco products in the state of Kansas. But anyway, they just do a yearly compliance check. One check per year is all that that funding. And it certainly does not hit every tobacco retailer uh, in the state um, as evidenced by the $25 fee. Um, 
Anyway, so so local tobacco retail licensure efforts are a way for you to do your own compliance, keep those products out of the hands of youth. And this language of how to look at the language that's being discussed in your community, you would be passing the strongest tobacco retail licensure in the community. Currently, the only other two communities that have them in Kansas is Wichita and Newton. Um, Newton did pass two years ago. Uh, the model ordinance language, uh, but it did not have the additional uh, density restrictions that your ordinance proposes, which makes yours even better and would position you as a leader in the state uh, in taking a stand for, for health and uh, restricting youth access. Commissioner Larson, thank you, Carrie. Appreciate that. This Commissioner Ananda, I think that I've been probably the biggest critic um, on the commission of Tobacco 21 requests that we've received in the in the past several years. Um, this is not a new conversation for us. I think that um, in the past few years, I've seen a response to that that I, I appreciate the direction in which it's going. Um, I appreciated the conversation around the fines for the retailers. One of my biggest concerns was, you know, particularly folks under the age of 21 who now have a misdemeanor on their record um, because someone attractive or someone who, you know, was just real kind um, was able to purchase alcohol. Um, who wasn't 21. And that can have a devastating rolling effect, particularly for folks, um, young people who are employed at a young age because they need to be. Um, so that was a huge issue for me. And I'm grateful to hear that retailers would be the focus of any violations of that. I mean, I, I'm willing to accept that person is probably going to lose their job. Um, and that may be a hard-earned lesson, um, but it's not going to impact them for at least the next five years until they could get that expunged. Um, and that it's not going to um, be enforced against the purchasers as well. Um I do think that we've had conversations around, and um, this would probably apply to licensure as well. Um, law enforcement doesn't have the capacity um, to go around and do those checks or engage those checks. So um, ensuring that there is some kind of tie to the state for funding uh, may be an essential piece of that. Otherwise, it would be a largely toothless um, piece of, well, ordinance from us. Um, and then the other focus and the other concern that I have is around primary prevention. Um, I think that there is a reciprocal life of targeting um, folks who are more likely to experience trauma or experience poverty um, or to be in poverty um, because those are coping mechanisms that have developed and that are at least in certain communities socially acceptable enough ways to cope with that trauma and that stress. Um, so I'm pleased to hear that there is funding for primary prevention, I think that that can continue to be a larger focus. Um, I know that, that the conversations around vaping is that it's not so much stress-related or trauma-related engagement in that, but I do still think that there is space for continuing the dialogue around prevention and primary prevention um, in addition to cessation. So I think that, you know, <laughs> having been the, the primary critic of Tobacco 21 sitting on the commission, I think that this is moving in a direction that is more palatable and that will have a more positive impact for everyone associated um, with any kind of regulation that comes from Tobacco 21. So thank you. 
This is Laura McCulloch. And um, would I be able to address Commissioner Ananda's comments? Um, I would just say if I misstated anything, um, then I would be I would be happy to have my statement redirected for sure. Is it okay if I, I proceed with um, um, addressing her comments? Is that okay in this space? I think what you're saying is if you're correcting her on something, she'd be happy to that. Otherwise, we've closed the public comment and okay. so that's a direction questions directed at you. Okay. Thank you though. Mayor, Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, uh, as Commissioner Nana pointed out, this has been a, a long conversation, certainly before you and I got in here. Um, I always like to, I guess, call the question, I'm looking for the ask. And I love that we're getting all this information. And um, I feel like when I've spoken with these advocates in the past, I knew what the ask was. And now I feel like there's a little bit of a holding pattern with what's happening federally and at the state level. I just want to make sure when I walk out of this meeting that I know what their specific ask is and that we have a, a, a time that we're gonna discuss it. We have a direction there. So a little bit, a little bit on you and your leadership, but also just making sure that we know where the direction is here. Mayor Fingal, I, I will say I think that is a, a, a question to um, to one of the presenters who wants to uh, maybe clarify what the ask is. Um, again, you you gave us several options. So what kind of the what, what do you think is the best way that if you were pushing forward with this, that you'd like us to engage the community on? I open that to any of the speakers there. Brad, this is uh, Chris Tilden from Livewell. And, and I, you know, I, what we've presented are, are a number of policy options. Uh, we have, um, content experts who can really speak to any of those policy options. Uh, we would be you know, more than willing to work with staff to explore uh, the extent to which uh, multiple policy options would be appropriate to, uh, to uh, look at here in the city of Lawrence. Um, I don't think we have come with specific um, recommendations about you know, changing specific language to specific ordinance, but we certainly um, would entertain and be available to be part of those discussions. Mayor Figo, I thank you for that, Chris. And I guess kind of my follow-up question to kind of um, Vice Mayor Shipley's is what would you see as, and I know he's mentioned that the idea of a you know, public engagement process, what, what, what do you see that as and who do you see being the leader of that public engagement process, um, live well or some other tobacco-free coalition or the city being the leader of that kind of discussion process? If you know. This is Commissioner Larson. I would even add the health department in that potential list. 
So this is Carrie Rinker with the American Heart Association State Government Relations Director. Uh, as I was sharing earlier, I don't think uh, a ton of energy and effort needs to be placed into the uh, community engagement on tobacco retail licensure per se. Uh, but the flavors piece is the thing that I think does require that community engagement, uh, engaging Haskell University, engaging KU students. Uh, we've already been discussing this with Livewell Douglas County, as well as the health department, that the Heart Association would be happy to assist with that and work in partnership with you uh, on that piece. And we see, I, I guess to also finish that thought, we see that passing a tobacco retail licensure lays the foundation for that discussion. Um, I know we can also share that there are some other communities. This is an issue that's being discussed by the Tobacco Free Kansas Coalition. I am the policy committee chair with that group. Uh, and we know that other communities are keeping an eye on this discussion that you're having this evening. Uh, you know, to, to consider similarly passing tobacco retail licensure in the state. Uh, the Resist Youth Chapter has designated uh, tobacco retail licensure as a, a goal of theirs, you know, for youth prevention in the state. Uh, so I'm sure they would love to speak with you more about this as well. Um, but anyway, I hope maybe that answered your question and just sharing that, that we would be happy to, to assist and engage in that process. No, Shingala, that, that does help. Um, Ms. Richard, do you have a, a comment on that, to answer that question on engagement? Um, maybe just a little bit, uh, Kim Richter from uh, KU Med and uh, uh, dweller in Douglas County and two kids who vape. Um, I think that there are four options that, that we're asking the commission to consider. And um, one is the tobacco retail licensure. Another one is density and location requirements. Another one is including uh, vaping in uh, the clean indoor air ordinance. And then the other one is a flavor ban. And if I missed anything, then, um, and, but all, all of those to some extent or another would need public input. And I'll sign off and see if anybody else wants to add to that. Mayor Fingalai, thank you. Vice Mayor Shipley, does that give you some more direction? Yeah, uh, Vice Mayor Shipley, yeah. So then I guess I wonder, Mayor, is there one of those four things that the five of us can get motion on or recommendation to staff on? So for example, um flavors right we'll just pick one um i'm i'm hearing that there's that is an option uh for us to locally make some policy changes on uh do i hear any um other commissioners who are interested in that discussion this commissioner bully i guess i'd prefer that we start with our own clean air indoor ordinance because you know that's our ordinance it, it could easily be updated and, and you know that's it's a good place to start i think 
This is Commissioner Nanda. I would agree with Commissioner Bully, um, starting with our in our own backyard, so to speak. Um, I also think that looking at licensure prior to flavors, it sounds like would be a um, a process that sits more squarely within the commission without um, needing necessarily as much public engagement, but it would be like a soft start to public engagement if that was something that we wanted to engage in around the flavors, because I'm hearing Carrie mentioned that that would require a lot of public engagement moving forward. Mayor Finkelvai, and maybe this is a question for Tony or Maria. Um, it would seem to Commissioner Bully's point that adding um, vaping into the indoor ban would, could be straightforward, but maybe a, a licensing program would be a little more involved or difficult. Um, one, your thoughts on that, and two, do we have other retail licensing schemes that this could fit as a part of, or would that be a new process here in, in Lawrence? I was trying to think of any local retail um, ordinances we have. I'll start. City Attorney Tony Wheeler and then um, Maria can chime in if she wants. I do think that um, amending our Clean Air Act ordinance would be um, fairly straightforward. Um, as far as other retail licensed establishments, obviously um, those that sell alcohol are highly regulated and we have a local license um, for that. Um, Sherry Riedemann, who does our um, a lot of our uh, licensing. She may have others that come to mind. We have um, rental licensing, as you know, and um, those are those are some that come to mind quickly. And I'll quickly add too. In addition to that, we we do have um, a section of the code under Chapter Nine, Article Eight A, that is specific to tobacco products and the sale of those to persons under the age of eighteen. So that would need to be addressed depending on what your direction is, but there is another place in the code where um, specific language pertaining to retailers and sale of tobacco is currently. Mayor Fingalai, that was Maria Garcia, assistant. I'm sorry, Maria Garcia, assistant city attorney. Thanks. Mayor Fingalai, Sherry, did you have any, any, anything to add to that? I uh, this is Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk. I would say the closest thing we have is, is our cereal malt beverage and alcohol licensing. A lot of the other types of licensing, um, I wouldn't relate specifically to retail, um, although it's not. Um, I mean, you know, we, we license tree trimmers. It, it's not contractor licensing, but it, it, I, I, I can't think offhand of any that are, that are really related to retail. We have taxi cab, but again, it's not that same type of retail establishment. And Mayor Fingal, I think I know the answer, but so I'm clear, our um, CMO beverage license includes, for example, uh, a quick shop that sells alcohol, but also might sell this product as well not just bars and restaurants, correct? Um, that's correct. There is on-premise, oh, sorry, Sherry Riedemann, city clerk. There is on-premise and off-premise. So um, on-premise is obviously for consumption on-premise, but the off-premise license is primarily grocery stores and convenience stores. And there are quite a few of them. Whether they sell tobacco products as well, I can't comment on, but I think we all know that they generally do. 
Mayor Fingalai, thank you. So this is Commissioner Larson, and, and I don't have a problem with the recommendation of looking at at least these two items, the indoor ordinance as well as the licensing. Um, I would like to know maybe a clarification from some of the commissioners as to on the tobacco licensing, are you are we wanting staff to come back with an actual ordinance or just um, a discussion, um, an outline of what they see as the advantages as well as some of the pitfalls? Um, that we could encounter when um, trying to do something of this nature. This is Commissioner Benda. I imagined a dialogue before an ordinance for sure. Um, costing and, you know, all of this will have to be considered. So thanks for clarifying. Mayor Fingal, that's what I was going to say as well. I think the, the next step would be to consider some sort of, you know, community engagement plan, not only, um, you know, from people in the in the public on both sides of the, the actual use issue, but also possibly from retailers and others who might be impacted by such a, um, a scheme. I think keen input from all of them would be a, would be the next step. I mean, I think, again, we're generally supportive of some of these ideas, um, but, you know, figuring out the details of that, I think is important. May have, oops, so I may have think of the other thoughts, I guess, on what you would see as the next step. I mean, I asked the question about who might lead it or who, who you know, how we might move forward from here. And I guess I'm interested in what commissioners think on, you know, kind of what kind of direction we want to give staff. And if anyone on staff wants to chime in with a thought or a, um, Suggestion. I'm open to that as well. This is Commissioner Ananda. I think a draft ordinance for the indoor ban would be reasonable to come back on whatever timeline staff wants to identify. Um, but I wonder if there's further conversation to have with others to talk about um, the licensure issue and then bring that back to us once some of those conversations have been had with um, the considerations for us. Yeah, this is Commissioner Larson. I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that just the ordinance coming back with a modified ordinance on the vaping issue, indoor issue, on the tobacco license, I, I would want to see just an outline or a discussion as to you know how we could potentially have the ordinance. I know it seems like there might be some model ones out there at Wichita Newton, but then also um, a discussion of what it would take to, as far as enforcement goes, obviously that would take um, additional inspections, uh, staff time to do that. So I would wanna see how that would impact our ability to actually enforce the law or the ordinance we're going to consider passing it. So Mayor Finkelai, listening to that, are you thinking possibly that we direct staff to work with LiveWell and the presenters here to kind of come back with something on a future agenda item? And once we have a little more clarity on that, again, kind of a broad-based, then we we therefore, thereafter initiate kind of a, a discussion um, from that point? Or are we thinking the discussion now before we 
um, even see any more draft language. I'm open to either. I'm just asking a question. I think for my per for my purpose and what would help me out the most is to hear to um, see the written discussion as to how this how they would envision this all rolling out if the licensors went through. So I prefer to have that first. Um, and if they want to bring some draft just to take a look at it, that's fine. But I'm more interested in the discussion part as to how this would actually be enacted um, and, and what the potentials are for cost to us, to our staff, for our staff. Commissioner Larson, and then it, obviously at, at some point we would um, start with the community discussions from there. Um, Mayor Finkeldie, well, I think that, I mean, I, again, I think that makes sense going back to Vice Mayor Shipley's thought of, you know, knowing a little bit more what, what's being asked, you know, putting something out there with a little more, um, you know, what's the saying, meat on the bones, as it were, will, I think might lead to some more discussion. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess the idea would be, um, the thought process here is what I'm hearing is maybe have staff work with our presenters to bring back kind of a, um, a more focused um, idea process and then put that on a future agenda, which the outcome of that discussion would be some direction for public engagement on those same topics before eventually coming back um, with an ordinance if that's um, how the public engagement works out. This is Commissioner Nanda. I guess that I didn't perceive the, the the indoor air ordinance and the conversation around licensure being on the same timeline. Um, it appeared, according to what what Tony mentioned, that that would be a relatively easy language fix versus the community dialogue around licensure. So I just I just wanted to distinguish those two, at least in my thinking. Commissioner Boy, I, I concur with Commissioner Ananda. Mayor Finkel, I, Tony, I saw you turn your camera on. Did you have a comment on that process or what we're talking about? City Attorney Tony Wheeler. Yes, I just requested clarification. Do you want us to return like in three to four weeks with a consideration of amending our Clean Air Act? Um, or do you want us to pause on that and have this discussion with the presenters tonight and come back with a proposal or some ideas on a licensing scheme? Is that what you want to focus our attention on? If you could prioritize those or clarify. And um, I would say that working on the licensure will take, will take some time. Um, so it'd probably be towards the very end of the year before we could probably bring something back on that. Mayor Fingal, I well, with that kind of caveat, I guess Commissioner Ananda's point with Commissioner Bully was to bring back some language on the end of vaping quicker and then continue to work on the licensing and kind of get a framework. And I guess Tony, my thought on the on the framework is um, you know we don't need all the details when you bring it back to us, but just a, a, a kind of a framework 
in which we could then go to the public, get their input before bringing it back with direction on more specific um, work by you. Again, I know that's going to take time even to get the framework, so I'm not suggesting that has to be on the same time frame, but I just wanted to make you let you know what my, my thinking was on that. Other comments? Uh, Larson, and I would concur with um, Commissioner Nanda as well as uh, Commissioner Bowley, yourself for that matter, uh, as to how we slice and dice this, so to so speak. So. May I think of that, Vice Mayor Shipley? You okay with that process? Yes, that, that's, that's the very concrete roadmap I was looking for. <laughs> Mayor Fingerline, I guess I'll just ask one more time to Tony, is is that as concrete, <laughs> is that a concrete roadmap for you or do you still have questions? City Attorney, Tony Wheeler, no, that's very helpful. Thank you. We'll, we'll work um, just as you outlined it there. Mayor Fingerline, well, thank you. I look um, forward to this good discussion. It's a work session, so we don't take any formal action, but I think we've given the direction and I look forward to the continued discussion. Thank you for all our presenters and all our subject matter experts here tonight. Um, it's an important topic for us to consider. Commissioners, I think we'll take a 10 minute break before we move on to um, the next work session item. So let's return at eight o'clock. We are ready, Mayor, thank you. Mayor Finkel, I, I am gonna take roll call, I believe Commissioner Bowley is having a little technical difficulty reconnecting, um, but we'll go ahead and take recall, um, roll call, and then we'll see if he joins us. And if not, um, we'll go ahead and proceed with the presentation and hopefully he'll be back in. He's trying now. So Vice Mayor Shipley. Here. Commissioner Ananda. Here. Commissioner Lawson. Here. Mayor Finkelai here. As I said, Commissioner Bowley is trying to get back on. Um, Porter or um, Sherry, if you see Commissioner Bully get back on, let us know and we'll go ahead and um, include him in the roll call here. But in the meantime, we are moving to item number two, which is a work session item on an update related to our um, enterprise resource planning system. And Jeremy, looks like you get to present this. Yes, thank you. Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Um, <clears throat> Give me uh, just a second here to share my screen. Mayor Figlad, Jeremy, if you're talking to us, we can't hear you. But maybe you're just trying to get your screen shared. <laughs> Sorry about that. My screen locked up. Um, Jeremy Willen, finance director. Um, 
I was saying as I was trying to pull up the presentation, um, the presentation tonight is going to go over the, um, the process of how we got to where we are tonight and then the recommendations from the project management team uh, for options to move forward uh, with the enterprise uh, planning and software. We now have it on our screen, Jeremy, so. Thank you. So our presentation tonight is gonna to go over uh, some introductions to know who's on the uh, call with you. Uh, back A little bit of a background to uh, how we got to where we are, the system selection process, uh, current challenges and what we anticipate the benefits of these software systems to be. Uh, and then we're gonna turn it over to Tyler, who uh, is one of the vendors that we're discussing tonight for uh, an introduction to their uh, Munis program and their InterGov program, and just a general overview of their company. And then we'll throw it over to Ceridian, uh, who is, uh, we're looking at their Dayforce software um, for an introduction and overview. And then uh, Barry Dunn will also discuss with you their uh, involvement and the next steps uh, in our contract process with them. And then we'll, um, before we get to the additional questions, we've got a few slides on the on the funding plan and the uh, recommendations from the project management team. So uh, just to get things kicked off, of course, I'm Jeremy Wilmoth, the finance director. I've been the uh, project manager for the city uh, side of the enterprise resource planning uh, replacement project. Uh, with us tonight is also Ryan Doyle with uh, Barry Dunn, who we all selected in early 2020 uh, to help us craft the RF, or, well, then we'll get into this in more detail, but uh, facilitate a, pub, a uh, staff engagement process to help craft an RFP a request for proposal to solicit vendors um, to uh, help us essentially meet the uh, challenges that we currently have with our software. Uh, so to that end, uh, Albin Michaud is here with Tyler Technologies, and Leslie Solomon is here with Ceridian. So just a little bit of background uh, before we get started. The Enterprise Resource Planning System uh, for the City of Lawrence contains uh, primarily three components. Financial management, human resources, which includes payroll and time management, and then community development. And so when we discuss financial management, we're really talking about the general ledger, which would be the backbone of our finance system, as well as accounts payable, all of the vendor checks that we write, uh, accounts receivable, all of the revenue that we receive, purchasing, grants management, capital projects, and budgeting. In terms of human resources, uh, along with payroll and time management is also the official employee records for all employees, uh, both current and retired, uh, recruiting, training, and benefits management. And then under community, community development, excuse me, we have land use planning, licensing and permitting, inspections, and code enforcement. So that's the uh, crux of what we asked Barry Dunn to help us uh, facilitate a process to uh, find a replacement for. Uh, we're currently using uh, Harris Enterprise product and 38 additional applications. Uh, some of them are Excel spreadsheets, some of them are 
um, you know, homegrown products that we've, uh, the city has used for um, quite some time. Uh, but the whole goal behind this project, this project was to identify those key, um, those key resources we're currently using and are having uh, difficulty maintaining and finding a suitable replacement where we can streamline a lot of those processes. And I think what you'll see uh, with both Tyler and Ceridian uh, is that they really took the heart, uh, our document that we put together and, and came up with some really good solutions for us uh, moving forward. And just a reminder for the commission and the public that the uh, RFP with Barry Dunn was issued in uh, 2019. Um, the city commission selected uh, Barry Dunn in early 2020, and we got to work um, with them and uh, city staff to essentially uh, line out, you know, what the pain points are in our current systems, uh, where we see gaps in our ability to effectively communicate uh, financial information as well as operational information. And we, uh, we essentially boiled all of that information down into the requirements analysis that drove the uh, request for proposal uh, that was uh, sent in late 2020. Uh, and I don't wanna get too far ahead of myself, but um, essentially 13 vendors responded to that RFP and uh, Barry Dunn is gonna go through uh, that, that selection process that we went through uh, in just a minute. So, um, Ryan Doyle, I believe it is your turn. Excellent. Thank you, Jeremy. Ryan Doyle, Senior Manager with Barry Dunn. And before I go too far, can everyone hear me okay? Thank you, Commissioner Nanda. Excellent. Well, I, I wanted to provide an overview uh, of Barry Dunn and the city's work leading up to this point in time. Uh, obviously, some additional background is provided in the staff memo that was submitted for today's work session agenda, but wanted to provide a high-level overview of some of the steps that were taken. Um, and, and taking a step back for those that may need a refresher on Barry Dunn and, and the firm, um, if you're unfamiliar, I'll provide a, a quick overview. We've been engaged, as Jeremy mentioned, as an independent objective advisor for this process. So helping to lead the city through the process of assessing the current software environment. And when we talk about software, we're talking about really one of the core functions of back office uh, business processes for the city of Lawrence. We're talking, as Jeremy mentioned, about the chart of accounts, about the budget. We're talking about employee files. We're talking about um, the public interface for permitting and land use and land management processes. So really key areas of overall city operations. So in, in reviewing the use of technology, it wasn't just merely a matter of looking at how technology is used or in some instances not used, but also looking at some of the processes that are used to support it outside of technology, as well as the interface between technology, process, and policy. Um, as a firm, we were founded in 1974. We do have a nationwide presence. Um, currently have over 650 employees across the United States. And the fastest growing group within Barry Dunn is actually our consulting team. And the folks that worked on this engagement with the city of Lawrence are dedicated to municipal clients. We only work with cities, towns, and counties on a day in and day out basis. So to that end, we've worked on a similar scope nationwide with over a hundred different municipal organizations over the years. And before we go into some of the process, I'd really like to take a moment and say, you know, from my recollection, this is among the most inclusive and expansive project teams that I have seen for this type of engagement. 
Um, so I'd really like to publicly acknowledge the hard work of the city project team that was involved in this process before we even go any further. Um, over the course of the past year through the pandemic, the team has really committed a lot of time above and beyond their day-to-day -day responsibilities, committed a lot of diligence and really gone through a very thorough process. And I see many of those members of the project team beyond just Jeremy here on the line today. So we'd just like to publicly acknowledge the hard work of the city project management team. So taking a step into the system selection process, the first item we have identified here is ongoing project management. This is merely to identify that throughout the course of our engagement with the city of Lawrence over the last year, our team has maintained a clear and consistent line of communication working with Jeremy and through Jeremy to reach out to a much broader audience at the city. So that's really continued on an ongoing basis throughout the course of each of these four phases we have identified here on the screen. The first phase of the project really involved project coordination and initiation. That was a process that really started the change management aspect of the overall engagement. This is where we started to identify who are the stakeholders that are gonna be involved in this project? What are our timelines? What are some of our known constraints? And what are most importantly, perhaps, some of the city's goals and objectives? And we'll touch upon some of those here in just a moment. Phase two is where we really began to roll up our sleeves and work with city staff and dive into the analysis of existing documentation, processes, procedures, and use of technology. Um, and we'll touch upon this on the following slide, but this was really a fantastic opportunity. We were able to meet with city staff across all departments. This wasn't just a matter of meeting with finance staff or HR staff or technology staff. We met with folks from risk management, parks, police, fire, all across MSO. There was a lot of engagement from the city throughout the course of this entire process, really looking to understand how does software and how do these processes impact all departments across the city? So really looking forward to be a participatory process overall for city staff. So as Jeremy mentioned, one of the key outputs in that requirements analysis was a requirements analysis report. And that report identified the current business processes as well as some of the challenges and key areas for improvement in the future environment. So looking to improve upon what the city is doing well today and looking to fill any of those bottlenecks or gaps that might be experienced in the current environment. Are there ways in which we can improve processes or adopt new technology to be able to support future growth for the city and continued excellent service to your citizens and also to your staff? Based upon that requirements analysis report, that served as a key foundation into developing what we call functional and technical requirements. And those are detailed requirements that the 13 vendors that Jeremy mentioned responded to in their proposals when they provided proposals to the city team to consider. So we developed a request for proposal document that was inclusive of narrative questions, functional and technical requirements, as well as looking to understand not just the functionality of software systems, but also the vendor's approach to making the city successful through the implementation process and where vendors had demonstrated this in similar municipal environments previously. Coming out of that process, there was a phase of evaluating proposals, and this is outlined in much more detail in the, the staff memo, but this included everything from reviewing the written proposals to asking for clarifications from vendors, identifying vendors to bring in for a demonstration process, vetting what the city had seen and heard in proposals and in the demonstration process through reference checks, and ultimately leading to the identification of Tyler and Ceridian as the city's preferred vendors to which they are entering into negotiations with. So I mentioned that one of the key items overall in the 
initial phase, the initiation coordination phase was identifying some of the key project goals and objectives. And I won't walk through each one of these and read each item here on the screen, but I'll sort of talk through some of the highlights for folks on the line today. Hopefully this becomes very evident in, in this presentation that it was an inclusive and transparent assessment procurement process. There were multiple touch points throughout the entire engagement for city staff to be engaged from early on from the planning process all the way through the selection and identification of the vendors here on the line today. This included a structured and thorough RFP process, including broad public distribution as well. One of the items that the city identified early on was we have a system that we've been using since 2009. We have 38 other systems that we're using to support that system. A lot of staff don't know what they don't know. We don't know what's available out there and more modern solutions. So one of the things that the city project team had challenged very done with is to educate staff on functionality available in modern solutions. So to help towards this end, we, we touched upon it in a couple of different ways, one of which was to facilitate some pre-RFP demonstrations with software vendors to raise awareness about what type of functionality is out there in the marketplace, what types of things might be realistic to reach for or to envision as the city looks to identify new business processes. Additionally, through that requirements development process, a lot of work and time was spent in walking city staff through what might be possible, but also setting realistic expectations about items that may be a bit of a reach for vendors in the marketplace as well. So that way we understood that, and the vendors understood as well, that the requirements were tailored appropriately. The next two bullet points about identifying business needs not currently being met and re-envisioning business processes in that requirements analysis report, we identified 309 challenges and areas for improvement related to technology, process, and policy. So far more than I think many of us would care to go through today in a presentation, um, but just wanted to highlight that this was a very thorough and in-depth analysis process and largely fed by the great contributions from city staff from start to finish. When I talk about a very thorough process, the last bullet point here under the key project goals and objectives, I somewhat chuckle. In total, there were 4,572 requirements developed and included in the RFP to which the vendors responded. So this was really getting into the details of what the city's looking for in a future environment and trying to identify what portion of those requirements cities or vendors are or are not able to address through their solutions. When I talk about open and participatory process, one of the key items that we did at the beginning of the process was developed and issued an end user survey to city staff to solicit feedback and identify trends. We had 70 responses to that end user survey, which is a great response rate. Um, and, and a couple of key notes, I think probably to highlight that might be of interest to the commission is, of those 70 responses, 51% of users said they were unable to effectively and efficiently access needed information on a daily basis. So there's a big gap in terms of being able to access the information that folks need to perform some of their day-to-day -day activities. In addition, 86% of staff that responded to the survey said they are using external or shadow systems. Microsoft Excel, access databases, other software systems that have been purchased over the years to help supplement gaps in the current legacy system. So a lot of great input into that end user survey. That was a key input into 24 meetings that our team facilitated over three days with over 105 city staff attending one or more meetings. 
So really great participation, again, not looking to meet by individual department, but by functional area to understand where does a process start, where does the process end, and where are some of those bottlenecks that might be experienced on a regular basis. As I touched upon, the pre-RFP demonstration process was another touch point to engage with city staff and really look to raise awareness about modern solutions, keep folks engaged and really buying into that change management process, right? The what's in it for me at the end of the day as a staff user of a software system. So looking to re-envision what the future might look like. We then move forward into that collaborative approach of developing, reviewing the requirements for a new system. So those 4,572 requirements, those were reviewed in real time with city staff. Our team sat there uh, virtually in a room uh, with city staff and walked through and read aloud every single requirement with the city team to review and validate each of those requirements before it was issued in a request for proposal. So a very thorough process and a lot of city staff time and thought and effort went into this overall. And lastly, the vendor demonstration process We'll touch upon on the next slide as well was another opportunity to engage with city staff and have them brought in to understand what modern solutions might look like and to provide input into the ultimate selection that the city project management team has made on this slide here i uh, wanted to just show graphically a little bit of the the sort of cumulative approach to the process and the progressive nature of how the city went through the selection process again Additional detail is available in the, uh, the the staff memo that was submitted along with this agenda item for tonight. But at the crux of it, 13 proposals were received in response to the request for proposal. The city project managed team went through and reviewed each of those proposals from end to end and met as a committee in order to identify those vendors that they wish to bring forward for a demonstration process. Six vendors were identified out of the 13 and brought forward to participate in structured demonstration processes, showing the strengths of their systems, showing how they might be able to address some of the challenges the city has in the current environment, speaking to their implementation approach, their company background as well, and having an opportunity to engage with city staff in a virtual environment. Following that process, the city team reconvened, identified vendors with which to move into reference checks with. This was really an opportunity to reach out to peer organizations and understand, you know, the information that we've learned to date, does this hold up? What is it like to live with this vendor, to, have, to sort of have an ongoing relationship with the vendor five years from now, once you're a regular user of the system? What might you have done differently from the get-go that we can maybe as a city of Lawrence build upon to have greater success in our overall implementation process. Following that reference check process, the city team reconvened, identified Ceridian and Tyler Technologies as the two preferred vendors. And this past May entered into the contract negotiations, which has lasted up until uh, just last week. So it's been a very thorough process, a very engaged process with the city team. Thank you, Ryan. Um, before Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director, before I turn it over to uh, Albin with Tyler, I uh, just wanted to add to what uh, Ryan said. When we had those um, meetings with the city staff and really heard what the what the pain points were and where the gaps in our technology were, uh, the project management team, you know, developed some goals that we really wanted to see uh, accomplished with this project and. Uh, we've highlighted those here for you. I, I won't read them uh, word for word, but um, you know the first one is we want to provide staff with improved 
access to, da to data for increased efficiency and decision-making. We want to reduce reliance on what we call system workarounds. Uh, and a, a really good example of a system workaround, as uh, you all know through the audit process, is uh, due to our current systems limitations, we can't effectively put all journals into our bank reconciliation module without a workaround. Uh, so that was one of our key uh, areas of, of improvement we wanted to make sure we accomplished. Um, we also want to make sure that uh, the new softwares that are chosen and the vendors that are chosen are uh, engaged with our staff and willing to put the time in to make sure that everyone is trained adequately uh, on these new processes and how to uh, best utilize that system. Uh, we want to make sure that we have improved online services for our citizens, our customers, and our vendors. And we also uh, want to make sure that we're doing business process improvement to ensure that uh, our internal services are creating efficiencies where we can. And so with that, I will turn it over to uh, Albin Michaud with Tyler Technologies. Albin? Yeah, thank you, Jeremy, and uh, good evening, commissioners. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. My name is Albin Michaud, and I'm a senior sales executive with Tyler Technologies, and I've been with Tyler for about 24 years, working with cities, counties, and school business offices. Uh, mainly in the Midwest region, creating long-term and meaningful ERP business partnerships. And uh, we are very excited about the prospect of partnering with the City of Lawrence on this very important project. And my plan is to spend the next few minutes uh, providing you with a brief overview of who we are as a company, uh, the solutions we propose to the city, and then I'll wrap up uh, sharing, <clears throat> excuse me, our experience in the marketplace, both locally and, and regionally. Next slide, please. There we go. So at Tyler, we've been providing highly automated and efficient ERP solutions now for more than 35 years. And with over 21,000 clients, uh, Tyler Technologies continues to be the largest software company in the US solely focused on the public sector. And the public sector software is not just what we do, it's all we do. And at Tyler, we are bringing to life our vision for connected, connected communities, linking data and processes across departments and districts and between citizens and their government, and building a common foundation for the future through applications that will share data and integrate processes. Um, Tyler provides enduring value and return on investment to our client partners. Last year, we generated more than a billion in revenue and reinvested over $90 million in the continued development and support of our end user community like the city. In this past year, we saw many challenges. Uh, uh, this, this past year, we saw many challenging times for all of us. And like you, we, we see bright light at the end of this pandemic tunnel. And while the city's current effort of reviewing and selecting a new ERP solution has been long and challenging, uh, the end benefits will ultimately pro provision the city to continue to be both a regional and national visionary uh, for other cities to, to emulate. Next slide. Oh, went a little too far there, Jeremy. 
you went probably four slides too too far. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. I'm That's having latency on my system. Give me just one second. I think there's two more. Yeah, it's just not responding. Let's see if we are now. Okay, there we go. Thank you. So from a provider perspective, um, Tyler is the only vendor in the ERP marketplace that delivers an end-to-end -end government software solution spanning the breadth and depth of the mission critical services government entities address daily. And our solutions include financial management, courts and justice, public safety, appraisal and tax, uh, civic services, document management, public, public records, and, and, and more. Uh, and all of our software applications and solutions are purpose-built uh, have a common look, feel, and user experience, and our products are specifically designed to work together and independently with extended functionality to grow and scale as your needs change and evolve. So there's no other vendor that can offer you this breadth of fully integrated applications. And I'm um, just going to share a little bit of information here that you heard recently from, from um, Ryan and, and Jeremy, but uh, before I go much further, I would also like to thank um, the city's evaluation committee for all the time and effort they put into this selection process. And, and as we just heard from Ryan, we know that many hours have been spent aggregating over 4,500 functional requirements, review, reviewing proposal responses, participating in, in numerous software demonstrations and follow-up discussions over the past year. And I'm sure it was no easy task given, you know, current employee workloads, stay-at-home orders, and other issues that we had to juggle during this crazy time. But uh, through this process, we learned that the city has outgrown its current Harris Enterprise ERP solution. And in, in the interim, the city needed to add a number of third-party systems to supplement the gaps in functionality. And as we know, this creates silos of information, reporting challenges, and workflow limitations and just plain old uh, inefficiencies in processing. And as Jeremy just stated, the city's goals for this project are to have a more full-featured integrated solution to improve access to data and better reporting, to improve business processes to allow for better data-driven uh, decisions, and to improve internal communications through workflow. But most important, improve your service delivery and access to, of information for your employees, citizens, and business owners. And we fully understand every goal and comply with every improvement. So let's talk a little bit about Tyler's proposed solution, how we can help the city meet its goals. So Tyler's ERP solution will help the city best manage core functions while providing simplified navigation, integration that improves business processes and apps to increase staff productivity. And our Munis financial management applications will handle every aspect of your accounting, budgeting, and procurement needs. And this powerful, easy to use solution offers fast access to real-time data, accurate reporting, um, and budget forecasting, which will increase confidence in making important strategic business decisions. Additional productivity tools like automated workflow, integrated document management, and citizen 
facing financial insights compound the benefits possible for your organization um, in its constituents. And then our EnterGov community development software will automate your governmental operations and land use planning, permitting, enforcement, case management, inspections, and licensing. And from your office computer or a screen in the field, our multi-dimensional building permitting software expedites planning, review, and enforcement. Mobility functionality will save processing time and benefit your stakeholders, citizens, agency, and, and, and your bottom line. And with our Socrata Open Data and Citizen Engagement Cloud, your citizens, businesses, developers, and community organizations can easily access the most up-to-date data. Our Open Data Portal organizes it in easy-to-understand charts and graphs, putting your Open Data program on the path to building strong partnerships for a better community. And even though our ERP solution is comprehensive, there will always be a need for us to integrate with the city's other third-party solutions and our proposal also includes a strategy utilizing API toolkits and connectors to better automate these interfaces, uh, which will provide better in real-time integration. And through our Evergreen philosophy, we promise to protect the city's investment as long as you are a customer. We promise to continually enhance our solutions both functionally and technologically without ever charging an upgrade fee. This is the best return on investment the city can ask for. And our products are continu continually enhanced through a process of per perpetual upgrades. The steady stream of significant yet manageable changes is deployed with minimal disruption to your operations. And then finally, I just wanted to share our experience in the marketplace. Um, Tyler's ERP has been selected as their chosen solution by more than 2,000 cities, counties, and school business offices around the country. And we've been averaging about 80 new selections each year for the past decade. And in fact, 30% of all U.S. cities with a population of over 100,000 depend on Tyler's ERP solution each day. Seems to be stuck again, just a second. And one more. Yeah. There you go. So just wanted to share this list um, that represents our experience in, in implementing similar sized cities um, like the city of Lawrence. We have over 100 cities with a population greater than 90,000. I just want to highlight those that are in Kansas and those neighboring Kansas, uh, cities such as the city of Wichita, Kansas, uh, Columbia and in Independence, Missouri, Tulsa, Tulsa in Norman, Oklahoma, Des Moines in Davenport, Iowa, uh, Boulder, Longmont, Colorado, and among many others that have selected Tyler's ERP solution to help modernize their back office um, operations. And as we get more regionally focused, Tyler's ERP is being used by more than 260 clients in the Midwest. And I just wanted to share with you the list of our Kansas customers here. The city of Hayes, our very first customer um, in Kansas almost 20 years ago now. 
the city of Hutchinson, Leavenworth, Lenexa, Salina, Shawnee, Wichita, and Winfield. Um, and our newest Kansas customer who just signed a contract this year is Topeka Public Schools. And regarding our, our Entergov Community Development Solution, it's being used by more by nearly 600 city and county cl clients. And here are some that you may recognize. Uh, Columbia, Missouri is one of the first Munis and Entergov clients using both solutions. Uh, the city of Columbia has been a Tyler client since 2012. Uh, the city is also an early adopter of, of new Entergov version releases and actively involved in the Tyler Intergov um, Midwest User Group. Uh, Kansas City, Missouri, another client, has been an Intergov client since 2007 and one of our largest Intergov clients with over 600 city staff using the software. Overland Park, Kansas, has been an Intergov client since 2015 and one of our most active Tyler community users for Intergov nationwide. Uh, they are also an earlier adopter of new Entergov uh, versions um, and often provide input for new features in, uh, in future version releases of Entergov. The city has taken a leadership role as well in the Tyler Entergov Midwest user group and frequently hosts these meetings for um, other Tyler Entergov agencies in the Midwest. And uh, I also want to mention that Entergov can also be found in other college towns uh, where there are unique requirements uh, for things like rental licensing and property maintenance. Uh, these include um, Iowa City, Iowa, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Bloomington, Indiana, Columbia, Missouri, and our most recent selection, Jacksonville, Florida. Um, they are not only the largest city in Florida, but the 12th populous city in the entire country. And just to wrap up, um, why, partner with, why partner with Tyler? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, Tyler's here to help create safe, healthy, and thriving communities. And from implementation and training to support and recognition, we offer our clients much more than software. Convenience, customization, and a sense of community are at the forefront of everything we do. We have dec decades of experience serving the public sector. Public sector software is not just what we do, it's all we do. And I want to thank you again for pr providing me the opportunity to speak with you this evening. Uh, we are very much uh, looking forward to a long-term partnership with the City of Lawrence on this very visible and important project. Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Thank you, Albin. And uh, now we will hear from uh, Leslie Solomon with Ceridian. All right, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. All right, wonderful. Um, well, I wanna thank everybody for their time today. And of course, thank the city and Barry Dunn for all of their hard work throughout this evaluation. Um, so my name is Leslie Solomon and I'm on the public sector sales, sales team here at Ceridian. Um, I'm here today joined by my vice president of public sector sales, Brandon Chit, as well as our client partner, Wesley Sprague. Um, and we have been working with the city very diligently in this evaluation for the, about a year now, a little over a year, and are very excited to be at the point where we're at today, um, nominated as your vendor of choice and moving forward in um, what we hope is a very long lasting successful partnership with the city. So thank you very much. 
Um, I was asked to provide a, a brief background to the city on Ceridian, as well as how our technology called Dayforce can help the city moving forward. So I'll briefly cover a handful of slides regarding these items. Um, so as you can see, the first slide here, um, just to provide a little context on who Ceridian is, Ceridian is a global human capital management company with deep service bureau roots in payroll and tax dating back well over 80 years. Um, as we have adapted and evolved to market needs, um, we've expanded outside of just payroll and tax, and we are now the fastest growing cloud-based human capital management provider with over 5,200 clients live on Dayforce today in over 60 different countries. We also have a very active mobile application um, that can be found on the Apple Store and the Google Play Store with over a million daily mobile sessions conducted every single day. Um, we're also very proud to have um, a lot of recognition from third-party analysts, including uh, Nucleus Research and Sierra Cedar, amongst others, and recently being named uh, one of the highest-rated HCM companies uh, for for companies with over a thousand employees uh, by Gardner. So that was um, a pretty great accreditation we got as well. Um, and they stated that over 96% of customers are likely to recommend Dayforce. So on to the next slide, Jeremy. All right. Um, so when the city first approached us with their RFP and we began our discussions, we quickly realized that there were a handful of key objectives and outcomes that they were looking to achieve in their search for a new software provider. Mainly the overall goal of their project was to take advantage of the newest technologies available to them and to harness efficiencies surrounding today's needs as well as future anticipated needs for the city. Uh, part of this included streamlining tools to effectively manage human capital management, which includes everything from recruiting and onboarding to payroll and making sure you're accurately and timely paying your employees, to time tracking and scheduling, to managing benefit enrollment and ACA, to handling all things HR related, including performance, compensation, succession, and engagement. So for sake of brevity and from a very high level standpoint, because obviously it's taken a lot to get to where we're at today, um, the value that we're able to offer the city is a consolidation of multiple systems that they are working in today for all of these items into a much more streamlined, efficient, and user-friendly application. And that's through our solution called Dayforce. So as you can see here, because Dayforce was built from the ground up off of a single code line and a single rules engine, we do not rely on interface systems like the city works in today to provide an end-to-end -end human capital management system. <laughs> Instead, we provide one system with one user experience, one password, one employee record, and everything functions in real time, meaning you have access to key data and reporting in real time. So we'll highlight a few of these items here uh, momentarily. And Jeremy, if you can move forward to the next slide, please. All right, so as you can see, we have a great list of public sector clients that we work with today, including um, a lot of great names like the city of Pittsburgh, Kenosha County, Milwaukee County, city of Columbus, and many others alike. Um, we also work with uh, Kansas City Chiefs and almost half of the NFL team now because Ceridian is so strong in payroll and tax. Um, and we support so many different nuances around that. 
Um, but Dayforce works with clients of all sizes, ranging from 100 employees to 40,000 employees. And we can do this because we have one very scalable version of our software. So our clients never outgrow Dayforce and they never have to upgrade solutions with us. All of our clients are, are on Dayforce and it is a very configurable application. Um, we also give our clients a free sandbox for the life of their partnership to test and configure in which allows, allows our clients to seamlessly test out unique scenarios uh, for their organization without risk of compromising their data. So because of these things, as well as the ability to handle very complex pay and time requirements, public sector has become its own vertical with Ceridian and we're experiencing very rapid growth in this vertical market. As more and more cities are becoming very frustrated with working in very antiquated disparate systems, much like y'all are today, um, that aren't user friendly and are starting to look for a more modern approach to give their employees access to these features. Um, if you could move forward to the next slide, Jeremy. Um, oh, I think I, I'm sorry, did I miss a slide there? Could you go back one? Okay, sorry about that. Just a few other things to mention here really quickly. Um, you know, a few other really great names of who we work with, American Express, the Denver Broncos, Trader Joe's, Sephora. Um, more recent partnerships include Sherm and even portions of Amazon's business. Um, and then just one last thing to mention, um, Dayforce has a per employee per month fee structure. So we take a snapshot of our employees headcount every month and we scale accordingly. And I think that's another reason that you see a lot of diversity in the size of clients that we work with. Again, uh, very scalable for all those different types of organizations. Okay, thank you, Jeremy. If you could go forward to the next slide. All right, so um, one more, please. All right, so the city of Lawrence had many goals for the evaluation, but I've just chosen to highlight four of the main themes that we heard time and time again and the ways that uh, we're going to go ahead and help with these goals. Um, these items all directly affect everyone in your organization from administrators to managers to employees of the city of Lawrence and ultimately the citizens in which you all serve by allowing your staff to be more efficient with your time and giving your employees the tools and resources that they need to thrive in their day-to-day -day life. So the first goal that I'm going to address is a consolidation of multiple integrated systems. The city works in so many systems today and it is extremely cumbersome for the administrative team. Um, when taking a look at all these systems, we quickly realized that we could consolidate many of them um, and many of these different processes into the Dayforce solution, whether it be replacing them in phase one or you know, moving forward in phase two. Um, by consolidating these systems, you also consolidate training, implementation, and support resources into one vendor for the project. All right, Jeremy, if you can move forward. So by consolidating all of these systems, we can help with the second item which we heard, which was the need to significantly reduce manual and duplicated processes across the board. Um, Dayforce's unique proposition is that we have a single system of record, meaning you have no duplicate entry in Dayforce. 
So from the moment an employee onboards, all of their information is instantly populated to their employee record upon hire and so on and so forth as they become an employee. Um, employees, managers, and administrators have a single user experience with one password and one URL to go to for all of their work life information. And Dayforce will provide your team with unlimited workflows to support these internal processes. Um, we have, you know, arguably some of the most configurable workflows on the market. Um, so all, um, in a, sorry, in addition to um, enhanced self-service features um, and capabilities like fillable forms, e-learning, um, access to earning statements, time away, and more. So as um, so, you can see below a few of the really great operational outcomes and some of those statistics there that we typically see our clients gain from implementing Dayforce, and that's that's just a few to highlight. So moving forward to the next slide. All right. So um, the third theme that we heard was the need to automate data sharing between your human capital management system and third parties that you will continue to use. Um, and we can accomplish this in a variety of ways, including APIs and flat file feeds, as well as pre-built integrations that we have um, through programs like our Dayforce Software Partner Program and our Dayforce Link Program, which consist of over 1,400 pre-certified integrations that we have to major benefit carriers and other software providers. Um, and this can significantly reduce the time spent building out these feeds throughout implementation. Our Dayforce developer network is free to your team to explore building out integrations uh, with Dayforce. And we have pre-scoped the building of your carrier feeds as well as your other major integrations into this project, um, including integrating into your accounting software with Tyler as part of the package as well. These exports can happen in whatever frequency you choose, and we have assigned GL consultants and specialists, subject matter experts in, in these areas to help assist in that process. If you could move forward to the next slide, please. So last but not least, I wanted to touch on the fourth theme that we heard from your team, which was having better access to data. When you're working in multiple integrated systems that aren't talking in real time, you have limited access to data, as well as the inability to blend and modify um, the data that you have without a lot of manual intervention. Um, and you certainly have lack of real-time access. So with Dayforce, we offer over 300 pre-built reports that can easily be modified along with ad hoc reporting capabilities. So you can report on any key metric for your organization that you're looking to track. Um, this will give your managers and your executive team the infor information that they need to make the right decisions at the right time. Along with these reports, we have dashboard quick views that, you can, ease, that can easily be exported to PowerPoint uh, for your convenience. So everything in Dayforce is date and time stamped, and you can even audit down to the employee level in Dayforce. The beauty of Dayforce moving forward for the city is that you will have real-time access to your data. You'll have the ability to blend all of those reports from any area of the human capital management system. So payroll, time and attendance, benefits and talent management, all talk in real time. You can also schedule your reports to run at your convenience and be delivered to you in whatever fashion um, you choose. And security will always follow the user 
and day four so you can ensure that all of that information, um, private information is protected and remains private. In addition, we offer OData capabilities to our clients, which we often being, uh, see being used by individuals really much like yourselves who may not need to be in day force, you know, on a daily basis, but still needs access to reporting um, where you can link day force to an Excel spreadsheet on your desktop, hit refresh and easily have access to the latest and greatest data. So there's so many different ways in day force to get the data that you need. Um, searching for and sorting bad data is really going to be a thing of the past for you moving forward. Um, and you'll, you'll know that you have access to, to all the data you need when you need it. So really in closing, the last thing that I just wanted to mention was that we have multiple options to train employees on day force, including e-learning, instructor-led learning, on-site training. We have a whole org readiness toolkit that we give to you to use. Um, we've included our Ceridian-led consulting services where we analyze and simplify your existing processes up front, up front prior to even starting that implementation process, um, as well as a whole change management plan tailored to your organization with clearly defined roles and responsibilities to ensure this project stays on track so the project is very closely managed. Um, and, you know, again, I just want to thank the city for choosing Ceridian as your partner in human capital management. We're very confident that we can provide you all um, with a solution that will truly make work life better for your employees. And we look forward to, to working with your team moving forward. So thank you so much. Thank you, Leslie. Jeremy Willen, Finance Director. We're going to um, hold questions to the end. Sorry, I'm having some latency with my PowerPoint here. There we go. Okay, now uh, Jeremy Will with Finance Director, I'll invite uh, Ryan Doyle back with uh, Barry Dunn to talk about um, the project moving forward. Thank you, Jeremy. Ryan Doyle, Senior Manager with Barry Dunn. Um, so you probably hear from, from myself and Helvin and Leslie, a lot of excitement um, about this project, and, and we're thrilled about the potential to continue our work uh, alongside the city. This is a, a very exciting initiative for the city, um, um, quite, the, quite the project and, and the work effort laying in front of city staff, but something that we look forward to being involved in. We feel as though we bring the right mix of project management, business process analysis, and technical perspective to the table to to help support the city. So um, throughout the implementation process, we would uh, we've proposed to serve as the project manager for the city. Um, so we'll bring our prior implementation and local government experience to provide a forward-looking perspective, looking to uh, adopt proven approaches to reduce risk and promote the achievement of the city's goals and objectives. So we'll be helping to ensure that the city project management team stays focused, tasks are completed on schedule, and the project stays on track, and looking to identify project risks and developing mitigation strategies and trying to do so in a proactive manner right from the beginning of the project. And assigning key activities to mitigate or resolve project risks and, uh, and communicating those between the city as well as vendor staff uh, project teams. Uh, in terms of leading and coordinating the vendor activities, we'll, we'll help uh, by facilitating the gathering and sharing of any technical or business process information requested by either vendor 
This extends all the way from uh, business process workflows to data conversion processes, current state analysis, and integration planning as well. So one of the very first tasks that, that we've proposed um, engaging with the city on is initiating an implementation project planning activity that includes development of a project charter that really sets forth the groundwork for the overall project between Tyler and Ceridian and the city of Lawrence. So that includes developing a change management plan that talks about organizational change management, um, looking at the individual level of change as well as planning for change across the entire city and where that is going to impact individuals and departments. That's going to include identifying a stakeholder register to understand who's going to be involved on the day in, day out, and what the roles and responsibilities were are going to be. Particularly important as we think about the overlap between the phases between the vendors that might occur at certain touch points and trying to find that right balance of, of city time to spend on day-to-day -day activities as well as the implementation process. Identifying a communication plan to understand the right touch points and the frequency and the level of communication for um, uh, affected end users, as well as for uh, perhaps city manager, as well as commissioners as well. Um, understanding what the level of communication will be and, and charting a path for that. So that way we have a clear plan for keeping all stakeholders apprised of forward progress on the project. So mentioned identifying a risk and issues register to make sure that we are tracking proactively on each of those items and of course coming up with status report templates so that way we are staying uh, engaged and documenting um, the progress of the project as well as key decision points and, and any upcoming activities and major milestones that have been accomplished as well. I think with that I will heed uh, the podium the virtual podium back to Jeremy. Thank you Jeremy. Thank you very much, Ryan. Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. So um, to sum up essentially what you've heard, the uh, project management team has uh, several recommendations that I would like to share with you. The uh, first of which would be to enter into a contract with Barry Dunn to provide implementation project management services. Uh, the scope of work is uh, 688,000. Uh, we would also recommend entering into a contract with Ceridian for um, the HR, uh, the human resources management systems piece of the enterprise resource uh, planning software. The annual fees, meaning those fees that we'll pay year over year uh, throughout the contract are 305,000. And the one-time fees for implementation is 653,000. With, uh, we also are recommending entering into a contract with Tyler for Munis and Intergov. Um, the uh, annual fees for that access to that software is uh, 599,000 and the uh, one-time implementation cost and fees for those softwares uh, and converting our data to those softwares is uh, 1.97 million. In addition to uh, those contracts, the project management team is also recommending that we um, set aside $260,000 for temporary staff support in the finance department to help with the implementation programming and testing of the new system. Uh, quite frankly, we'll be doing an audit, a budget, um, the strategic plan update, uh, the capital uh, improvement plan, and this implementation all at the same time. And so 
the uh, the finance staff is going to need some uh, temporary support to uh, help us navigate those waters. Uh, in addition to that, the uh, information technology department is uh, requesting $350,000, which would uh, get us a project manager and a business systems analyst that would first start with the implementation of this project. That project manager would then uh, move on to other projects that the city has uh, currently underway uh, or will have or uh, need needs to start uh, into the future. Um, and the business systems analyst would uh, then take over the ongoing maintenance of at least one of the portions of the system that we're buying uh, or recommending to buy tonight. Um, and then finally, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, project contingency. Uh, we've got that currently slated at 20%. Um, really with a, with a, a project uh, of this size and the, um, the type of investment that we're talking about, we want to make sure that we have an adequate uh, resource for any of those things that we have not yet been able to identify and won't be able to identify until we're into the project. Uh, we don't want to get into a situation where we've started to implement the new software and um, you know, something happens and we have to stop everything because we don't have adequate funding. So um, the Project Management Institute um, recommends as a best practice that we set aside 20 to 30% of the project cost uh, for contingency when we have as many variables as we have and when we have as many unknowns um, about potential outcome. Uh, and so the project management team is recommending a 20% project contingency. Uh, for this project. And so to talk just a little bit about the investment uh, plan, the if, if, if you all are generally uh, agreeable to this plan, the first thing we would need to do would be to amend the uh, current year capital improvement plan to include this project because it obviously was not included uh, when, this, uh, when the 2021 capital improvement plan was adopted uh, last year. Um, we would also need to adopt a charter ordinance so that the data that the city owns would be considered an intangible asset. Um, that's important because that's essentially what we'll be financing uh, for these upfront costs is the value of that data. Um, the next thing we uh, will be discussing in uh, pretty short order is entering into an agreement with U.S. Bank to do a private placement for the temporary note. Um, essentially, there's two options. One is a private placement and one is a public issuance. With the interest rates where they are right now, um, we're not as concerned about investment risk, meaning uh, one bank offering substantially higher or lower interest rate than another. Um, and so by doing a private placement, we really uh, can utilize two things. One, it will be cheaper to issue because we won't have some of those costs uh, that are required with a public issuance. And two, we would have access to those funds more readily. Uh, we, could, we could have that sale, as you've seen in the uh, staff report, uh, by the end of October, whereas with a public um, sale, uh, that would most likely be the middle of November or December, depending on when we get the timing worked out. And so then lastly, um, what's currently in the 2022 budget that was just adopted is um, funds sufficient to pay 
the debt service uh, for this um, these upfront costs that will be financed and um, most of the funds necessary for the um, software fees, but we will have to um, uh, increase our 2023 budget to uh, cover, um, I believe it was $162,000 um, of, the, of the annual software fees. So that will be programmed into the internal service fund um, for 2023 so that each of the various segments of our organization can pay their allocable share. I believe that is our presentation. So I will stop sharing now and uh, turn it back over to them. Thank you. Mayor Finkeldye, thank you all for that uh, good presentation. I can see why both uh, Albin and Leslie senior sales associates. They do a great job in, in, in selling the, the project products there. I'm pretty excited about it. But what questions does commissioners have? Go ahead. Commissioner Larson, um, I'll start out with just a couple of questions that I have and maybe follow up a little bit later with some more. So will this software allow us to um, enhance our ability to do job costing? To truly understand what an item or a job costs? Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Yes, um, there is a, a module that we're purchasing within Munis that uh, will help with um, job costing and also grant allocation. Okay. That's great. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, Commissioner Larson, again, um, will this software, as well as the ongoing program for it, will this help mitigate the issues raised in our recent audits? Jeremy, well, the finance director, um, yes, we know um, directly it will uh, mitigate the ongoing internal control issue over journal entry um, administration, as there won't be a need to manually manipulate journal entries before they're posted. Um, so that by in and of itself will eliminate one issue. Um, a lot of the other issues that we have around year-end reporting are really due to uh, lag in business process time. And so uh, as we get into the implementation phase, and the change management phase of this project, uh, we're very hopeful that these new softwares will help us uh, increase our efficiency and our responsiveness, um, which then in turn will help uh, reduce those uh, concerns from the auditors about timeliness of uh, year-end um, postings. Okay, thank, thank you. Um, and one final question, I'll let Mother step in. Um, the contracts for Ceridian and Tyler, how long are those contracts? Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director, the uh, initial term is five years. So is the price set for five years, the yearly price set for five years? Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director, yes, the initial term is set for five years. Um, I believe that one or both of them have us, uh, have indicated that uh, if we renew for another five years, there would be a price increase, but then that price would also then again be locked in um, 
either for the whole term or for part of that term upon uh, that renewal. All right, thank you. That's all I have for right now. Um, I might have a few, I'll have a few more later. This is Commissioner Ananda. Um, my question is how, how do you see this influencing priority-based budgeting, making it easier, making it more complex, or even having um, modules integrated that would directly feed into you know, a report based on our primary base or um, priority-based budgeting? Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Um, I think one of the challenges we have with priority-based budgeting right now is that it's incongruent with our current finance system, meaning um, we pretty much have to wait till it's over and then report on the results because we don't record transactions at that level. Um, by moving to Munis, we're going to set up our chart of accounts in a way that we believe we can report in real time uh, on the priority-based budgeting uh, components, as well as uh, the other reporting requirements that we have. Thanks, Jeremy. Mr. Commissioner Bowling, um, how will this uh, change our um, capital improvement planning and maintenance planning and uh, the verb and the reporting on that? Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director, um, we currently utilize a software um, called Planet, I believe, that is um, pretty much a, an access database that's been enhanced by the software company. Um, we believe by uh, rolling that into the Munis product and utilizing their software, one, it will integrate directly into the financials. So the annual report will be much easier to compile. Uh, and two, the data will flow through our system rather than being pulled out and then um, presented separately as it is currently. This is Commissioner Ananda. I have one more question. Um, how how do you see so you know the multiple other programs that we use right now currently that we won't necessarily have to use? Will there be any savings associated with um, ceasing relationships with those companies? Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Yes, um, one of the one of the challenges that any organization has when they make software changes is what do you do with the data. Um, and so I'm, I'm not going to commit today that every single software we're currently using on January 1st, 2023, we're just going to stop using. Um, there obviously will be a, a, a tail down period, if you will. Um, but our hope is that those softwares that we use day in and day out, all of that data will convert to the new system and there won't be the need to have that legacy data stored uh, in that software anymore. Um, part of the project management team's uh, responsibility will be determining what do we do with that old data that doesn't get converted into the new system, but we're no longer using for ongoing operations. Um, and I don't, I don't want to get too far out of my depth here. That's really more of the uh, information technology department, but essentially we can create data warehouses so that we can uh, get to that data ourselves without having a third party um, software interface so I will say there will be savings over time. I just don't believe it'll be in the same year that we implement this new software. I think a couple of follow-up questions. One is on that topic, which is 
I think Heros is our current system. What's our annual fee that we pay now on that? Jeremy Willen, finance director. Um, I'll have to get that for you. There's various components to that. Um, I believe it's around thirty to thirty-five thousand um, dollars, but that is for their legacy system. Mayor Finkelstein, yeah, we at the law firm we had a, a legacy system which we weren't paying very much for, and we got everything we paid for. <laughs> and so we we just recently changed, and it makes a huge difference. Um, a few other, I guess, kind of um, specific questions. Um, check on my notes here. So of the 38 um, workarounds we mentioned at the beginning, identified, do we think all 38 will be gone or do we think a few will have to, to be legacy? Jeremy, well, the finance director, um, part of the project management team's role is, you know, working with Barry Dunn is going to be change management and a key component to change management for any organization is recognizing um, the safety net, if you will, of the of uh, current practices, and then encouraging and helping the workforce to understand the benefit of the new. Um, so again, much like the legacy software, I don't know that day one, we're going to just completely stop doing 38 things outside of the system. Um, but our hope is that over time, we'll recognize the efficiencies inside the software. Um, and we'll address those um, through our change management policies within the organization. Mayor Finkel, I thank you. Um, I certainly understand, like you said, change is the, the biggest issue with any software conversion. Um, just out of curiosity, I noticed on one of the slides that Tyler, um, went, the city of Winfield used Tyler. Jeremy, wasn't that where you were at before? Did you use Tyler when you were there or was that came after the fact? Jeremy Willett, finance director. Yes, the city of uh, Winfield, where I was city manager previously, did use uh, a Tyler product as well. Mayor Fingalai, and I hope you had a good experience with that. Jeremy Willett, finance director. I've actually used Tyler in several locations where I've been, uh, the city of Raytown, the city of Winfield. And yes, I've, I've had a good personal experience, um, but I do want to, you know, I need to say this publicly. Uh, none of those prior experiences influenced, you know, my decision making on the project management team uh, in the evaluation of the the thirteen proposals. Mayor Fingal, I appreciate that, but I also appreciate the fact that you, as our CFO, has used have used it before. So I think that is there's a benefit there, um, even if intangible. Um, on the Back on your slide on, on the payment, how much did we, you, you talked about amending the CIP to add the 4.72 million because we did not have it in the 2021 budget. Did we have that in the 2022 CIP or did we not have any, I thought we had a placeholder in for some of that. Jeremy Wall with finance director. We currently have in the 2022 CIP uh, 2.5 million. Um, we chose just to leave that alone because we knew that this project was in the works while we were going through that budget process. Um, so we'll, we'll be amending the 2022 CIP next year as well to remove that project. Mayor Finkelai, thank you on that. I did notice in the report um, that there was a um, particular advantage maybe to Tylo as it relates to community development. And I just wondered very briefly, what 
you know, what sort of additional features made that an evident point to, to put into the report? Because obviously community development is something we're all pretty interested in besides finance. Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Before I try to answer that, I'm going to wait and see if um, maybe Brandon is on this call. I didn't see. Brandon Thorngate with Community Development was uh, the member of our project management team that spearheaded this side uh, for obvious reason, his expertise. Um, but from what I recall of the uh, discussions that the project management team had, um, they really liked the um, the mobile application and the possibilities that that afforded uh, their staff in terms of uh, real-time access to the data while they're on the road rather than having to come back and upload or download to a device. Uh, they really liked that functionality, um, I believe. They also really liked, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the public-facing portal uh, for citizens, for customers, and for vendors. Um, and so um, I believe the what not what sealed the deal, you know, the proposal, the the demonstration, but also discussing uh, some of those other vendor, uh, some of those other cities, excuse me, that have uh, implemented and are currently using Intergov really helped the project management team solidify that this was the right approach for our city as well. Mayor Finkelai, so I guess it'd be true to say that um, contractors, developers um, who work regionally probably have, some of them at least would have familiarity with the, the citizen side of that community development project? Jeremy Wilma, finance director, presuming that they do work in those cities that are using Intergov, I would, I would say that's probably true. Mayor Finkel, I thank, thank you. I could see that being a big benefit too, um, to have some, you know, overlap there. And let's see. I think, oh, the one last question I had was maybe similar to Commissioner Nanda's, but, you know, we just had some comments on the budget about, you know, the use of the citizens and, and, and how they interact with our budget and that um, that interface. Is this Will this project replace that budgeting tool for citizens to interact with our budget? Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. So um, we're currently using OpenGov. And Tyler does have a product that they offer. The cost is very similar to what we're paying OpenGov. And so the project management team determined that as we get into implementation, that's the most appropriate time to compare the two in a side-by-side -side comparison um, and then make a recommendation at that time as to whether to stay with OpenGov or to uh, convert to uh, Tyler's open budget platform. Mayor Finkelai, well, that makes that certainly makes sense, but I certainly hope we make that evaluation to see which product, you know, obviously has advantages and, and which one might be more user-friendly to the public. I think that's all my questions for now. Other questions before we open it to public comment? Yeah, I got just a couple Go more. Sorry about that. Commissioner Larson, sorry about that. Um, so the the bonding on this on this project will it include all the expenses that you talked that you showed on that one slide? Um, I think it added up to about four point seven two million dollars with upfront up costs. 
Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director. Yes, uh, that's our current plan. Um, what I what I will say is um, we're we're also reviewing cash on hand to see if we can winnow uh, what we need to borrow. Um, but when we present that to you, um, we'll obviously have that all spelled out in the staff memo. What we're, how much we're borrowing, how much we're using on cash on hand, um, and and that uh, will obviously change the term sheet. But we wanted to get you. Um, what we what we did as a pro forma, just so that you can kind of see the ballpark that we're in. Okay. Thank you. That's all I get. Mayor Finkelai, um, Sherry, are there any? Is there anyone in the in the city hall? And uh, no, there's not. Mayor Finkelai, thank you. If any member of the public would like to speak on this item and they're on Zoom, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature and Sherry will call upon you. There's no public comment on this item. Mayor Finkelai, thank you. I'll bring it back um, to the commission for discussion. Obviously we're kind of discussing where we're going to go from here and, and, and Jeremy had laid out a couple um, action items in the coming weeks, but I guess Jeremy, you're looking to make sure we're not putting the brakes on anything or any major. Jeremy was finance director. Yes. Um, you know, rather than roll these out contract by contract and then um, for lack of a better term, spring uh, the temporary note on you, I really felt it was more prudent because this project is multifaceted, uh, impacts so much of our organization to to take the time to go just step by step through it. And so um, while this is a work session, obviously there'll be no vote. If you're generally accepting of, of the ideas and the timeline that we have spelled out in the staff report is uh, what we'll go with that um, should uh, uh, contracts are still in review with the city attorney, but should they all be approved, uh, we would expect to see those on the agenda next week. Um, if there's any delay, then it may it may be pushed to the first meeting in October. But um, we need to uh, get moving on the financing if we want to get that component uh, wrapped up in in time for this project. So, really, that was um, the project management team's concern was just making sure that generally you're accepting of the uh, concept and the um, the proposals, and then uh, we'll start presenting them to you on the agenda. Mayor Fingold, I appreciate that. With that lead-in, comments from commissioners. This is Commissioner Bully, and uh, I'm trying to remember when I first heard about this project. I think it was about five years ago. Um, I think we put some money in the 2017 budget in the CIP for the first bit of money on that. Um, and I'm pleased that we've made it to this point because it's so critical for the future of efficient and effective processes for our government. Um, it's it's a, a significant investment that we're making, but um, we can't make progress in so many areas without doing this. So I support what you're doing and I 
am concerned about all sorts of things going forward, but I think we've got to take the risks. Vice Mayor Shibley, um, uh, I concur with uh, Commissioner Boley, and I um, when I when I hear you know the thirty eight work rounds and all that stuff, um, and that we'll fix it over time since I've somehow become the timekeeper. Uh, I, it would be nice to know: will it be two years that we can expect? Um, the kind of efficiencies that uh, people have been asking us for and that we've um, certainly Commissioner Bully has been looking for. Um, uh, I, I understand that it's over time, but also as uh, a huge investment as this is, and just as a taxpayer, I would like to know when will, when will we see um, the the clear um, data, the results, and all the things that that were being promised. What, Jeremy, in your experience with um, these companies, wh what would you hope for? Jeremy, well, my finance director. So um, I want to I want to make sure that I'm um, as clear as I can be. I I don't want to um, set up false expectations. The majority of the 38 will be cleaned up with uh, software that does not require a workaround. There will be some, though, however, that um, like tradition. They like the way they currently do things. And so even though the software may actually provide a, uh, a, a better solution, they'll continue to use a system they're familiar with. And that's where... Um, the change management team is going to be very uh, instrumental in uh, working on changing culture. Um, the the, uh, the Munis product will go live and the Ceridian product will go live January of 2023. Training and all that will occur prior to 2023. Um, there will be some, you know, hiccups and some headaches along the way. Uh, that always happens. Um, but I would expect by June of 2023 that we really have a handle on the software and the abilities, uh, reporting uh, timely uh, information um, to the public and, and uh, to you all. Um, so we're very excited about those prospects because we don't have that currently. Um, the quarterly report that I put together for you takes about two and a half weeks to put together. The uh, annual CIP report that we'll be presenting in, the, in a few weeks, uh, we started on that in, in March. So these are just very long, time-consuming manual processes, and that efficiency we expect to see immediately. Um, there will be some residual, some hang-ons, if you will, um, that will take a little bit more time. Um, and so, you know, I have been involved with a lot of these projects, and um, I think that to the extent we allow that grace to the, the staff um, to come alongside us rather than, you know, really try to, to make some dramatic changes um, without their input, we're going to be far more successful. And so that's why I don't want to commit and say day one, all these things are going to stop. Um, we will see them stop over time. The majority of them will stop simply because no one wants to do them. It's just the only way to get our work done currently. Um, 
so hopefully that that helps answer that um the intergov product will go live in june of 2023 so it would be around the end of the year that we'd really start to see the efficiencies um, as staff you know gets into their stride with that software This is Commissioner Larson, and um, you know, I appreciate all the work that's been put into this. Uh, but I, uh, and I do agree that we need to to get going on on you know, resolving these issues within our finance. Or we we need to get our financial house in order. Essentially, we've struggled with it obviously for a few years, and um, it's time it's time that we actually um, do something hard to actually make progress. But I have to admit, I'm really concerned about the cost. Um, I, I find the, um, it, it was much more staggering than I thought it would be. That's for sure. Um, and so I'm going to really be watching the cost as the costs come in for this, especially the, um, allocation of 20% contingency. That seems really high to me for a project, uh, from my experience with projects, that seems very high. Um, so I'm not expecting any cost overruns at all. That's going to be what I'm going to be looking for and what I'm going to going to kind of push back on um, that we get this job done with the um, budget that you propose for us. So that's where I'm going to be coming from on this. Mayor Finkel, I, I would um, start by saying I'm very supportive of the direction you go and Jeremy and the team. You know, I kind of mentioned it on a much, much smaller scale without 50 employees in the last two years, we've been working on a um, law firm, basically management system plan and we hired a consultant and we selected products and we tried to implement those products and we've had a lot of resistance to change and we've seen some benefits and some, um, you know, still struggles on that. And, um, you know, it, it is a, but, but I think the overall impact um, to our law firm is positive now and will be even greater later. And I see, of course, a lot of the same things here, even when you're not talking about fixing deficiencies, um, you know, again, the sharing of information allows things that aren't currently a deficiency um, just to be done better. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot of um, improvement in lots of areas because of improved technology. I mean, anytime you're counting on a 2009 um, um, you know, software product that you're paying $35,000 a year to upkeep, um, you're going to see efficiencies. And, and I certainly appreciate it both the presentations tonight and the way they work with other cities. So I, I certainly think we'll see a big increase, not only internally, but I was very excited to hear about how it, how the public might interact with this, public being citizens, as well as public being users of our system. You know, we didn't even talk about some of the code compliance and rental registration and some of those things that this also are going to do. I think we'll this will touch so much of our, our organization. Um, you know, I'd also say, you know, the, the HR product, um, now butcher how you say that word, but um, you know it's it's only you know a little over three hundred dollars an employee per year. That is um, very reasonable, um, and even the the enterprise, I mean the entire project um, of nine about nine hundred thousand a year is a little less, a little more than a thousand dollars an employee, assuming we have around 
888 employees or 900 employees. It's about $1,000 an employee, which, again, for those sort of systems, um, you know, given the size of operation, certainly it's a big number, um, but it really breaks down to a, a pretty reasonable amount when you and we look at it that way. And I can tell you I've looked at lots of similar type systems, and, and the cost per employee is definitely um, reasonable in this case. So I, I feel you know, good about that. It's a big number for sure. Um, but we're also a big operation, and we need to, um, you know, move forward with that. And then, lastly, I'd say, if again, you know, we all want to, and, and various members have said this. I mean, look at our um, strategic plan. You know, we have a priority-based budgeting says we're going to invest in our strategic plan, and that includes sound fiscal stewardship. Check check the box engage and empower teams, the, the usefulness to our employees to have mobile ability to have all of their um, work, their scheduling and all of that in one place, benefits, hours, payroll. Um, that's a great improvement for our, our employees. So engaged and empowered teams, um, obviously efficient and effective processes, easy. And then I'm certainly hopeful and I can't wait to see some of the ways this might help us in community engagement both with the budget, um, with things like rental and, and assistance and community development and the rest. So I think it checks so many boxes um, of our strategic plan. And as Commissioner Bowley said, we've been working on this a long time. Um, you know, big number, but a, a number we need to do to move into the, um, you know, into the years to come. So I certainly support this going forward. Any other Comments on this item? Jeremy, do you need anything else from us? Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. No, thank you all uh, very much for your time and uh, your feedback tonight. Uh, I also just want to reiterate that, uh, you know, while I'm the one making the presentation tonight, it's been a real uh, team effort. And so I'm very appreciative of all the departments that have stepped up and realized that we need to make this investment and have. Uh, given of their time and talents as well. So thank you to them and thank you to you all. Mayor Fingal, I thank you, Jeremy, and thank you for everyone who came to present tonight. I appreciate that. Now it looks like we move on to commission items. Any commission items? Vice Mayor Shipley, do you want to say anything about the great announcement today that you were at? I, I think... I think it's a. I mean, oh yeah, space. I guess I could. Thank you, Mayor, uh, Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, yeah, uh, Barry Global uh, has announced a great expansion of their premises. Oh, I hope my internet's stable. Um, in addition to a considerable uh, capital investment, um, eighty-four jobs uh, definitely will be added uh, to our city and. Um, that's really incredible for us, and it's very exciting. Certainly, during a time where um, other places are finding it hard uh, to find jobs, so we we're we're quite lucky. And I yeah, I appreciate this. Very very fortunate to be able to go to that announcement and uh, see all our partners that were there that worked so hard, including staff and the chamber, uh, to to bring that here to this community. Incredible. Mayor Finkelein, I'd, I'd only echo not only the new jobs, but, you know, when 
there's 800 jobs already existing. So by investing 61 million in this plant, it really secures the future of those 800 jobs plus the 885. If they would have selected another city, you know, not only would we not got the new jobs, but there could have been a risk to the current jobs we have. So a big win and, and thank you for covering that to me for me today. Mayor, no yes. Uh, this is Sherry Reedman, City Clerk. At the last meeting, you all discussed um, the commission representative on the CJCC, um, since Commissioner Ananda is no longer able to do that, and that you would discuss it this week. Mayor Fingal, I thank you for, for bringing that back up. Um, I know, Commissioner Lawson, were you able to attend this last meeting? Yes, Commissioner Arson, I was. I it was this this morning at eleven o'clock, and I had the opportunity to um, zoom into that and, and to listen to what they have said. They've actually um, obviously made a ton of progress since I've been on there, so it was uh, very enlightening. That's for sure. Mayor Fingold, I, um, I guess I'm not used to know the process about how we we talk about filling a position in the middle. Um, maybe others are interested. I mean, I'm, I'm. Vice Mayor Shibley, I just want to verify perhaps what number of uh, boards we're all on. Uh, that might have, we haven't talked about it in a few months. So uh, uh, if maybe some of us are on fewer boards than others, that might be a consideration. Mayor Finkel, I'm trying to think of how many boards I'm on. Um, library board and the BTBC board, and then the MPO. So I think I'm on three. Commissioner Arson, are you also on the uh, sister cities? No. Nope. Is that there? Oh, that's me. I'm MPO and uh, sister cities. Um. Commissioner Bully, uh, DMI and Explore Lawrence. Commissioner Arson, I, I'm on the Peasley and the EDC, I believe those are the two. I can't think of another one. Is there another one? Mayor Fingal die. And obviously, Commissioner Anand is not going to add board. <laughs> so, um, so I think we're all on a, on, on a couple boards. So I, I'm certainly willing to defer that that time for me at this late stage. Um, I can't really block off Tuesdays um, during the day for that. I've other things scheduled. Um, so I would defer to anyone who's interested. Vice Mayor Shipley, um, I guess maybe maybe one of my I, something that uh, Commissioner Ananda mentioned was I heard the subcommittee she's on. Um, uh, is there clarification on that? Will they find someone else or how does that play out? Do we know? This is Commissioner Ananda. That's a voluntary um, subcommittee. I, I do hope that there is a city representative on that group. Frequently, um, law enforcement um, from LPD will be part of those meetings sometimes when we're talking about the um, disparate contact data or something like that, but to have a regular um, city member in that subcommittee may be useful. I will say their meetings are not static, so it's generally a dialogue at the end of the meeting for what will work for folks um, because there are a multitude of professions represented there as well as community members. So um, 
I think that that may or may not work for for whoever goes onto the board. This is Commissioner Larson, and I'm definitely interested in continuing. If other commissioners aren't, um, don't um, aren't interested. Um. Um, Commissioner Ananda, can you remind me the name of that subcommittee? Racial, this is Commissioner Ananda, Racial and Ethnic Disparities Work Group. There, there are several subcommittees through the CJCC. Um, I think that there's probably one for anyone's interest area. Um, I think that because we're directly contracting with Northeastern to discuss the disparate context study, that may be a space in which um, it may be more helpful, but there are plenty of subcommittees um, to choose from, I'll say, um, on the CJCC. I think like, could one commission be on the subcommittee and one be on the CJCC or those subcommittees made up of CJCC members? This is Commissioner Renata. There is at least one CJCC member in each of those subcommittees um, who chairs. I believe that they preferred to have a CJCC member chairing that. Um, I was chairing that previously. I'm trying to think of CJCC members. I think that there is more than one in that group, so I don't think it's a necessity um, for my replacement to be in that group. Um, so. I don't know if that, I think that answers your question, Mayor. Well, I was, Mayor Finkler, I guess I was asking if, for example, Lisa was on the CJCC, could Courtney serve on that committee? Okay. Well, um, this is Commissioner Renanda again. I think that yes, but um, they would, court, Vice Mayor would not be able to chair that committee um, or serve, you know, any kind of executive role as a non-CJCC member. Vice Mayor Shipley, well, what is it? September, October, November, December. We're, we're three months away from uh, reallocating our roles uh, on the different boards. Um, uh, maybe a good question for Commissioner. Um, do you feel comfortable in that subcommittee if they have asked you to be in that subcommittee? Sorry, Commissioner Larson. <laughs> yeah, Commissioner Larson, I didn't know who you were talking to exactly. Um, Nobody's asked. I mean, like I said, today was my first one and definitely for sure not sharing it at this point. Obviously, I think it takes some history, understanding the history of what's going on um, with the whole project. So um, being on the subcommittee, I would have no problem with that. This is Commissioner Nadia. You could probably email Mike Brower um, to have a conversation. Yeah. Like, Mr. Larson, I think it, he's leaving. I, he's going to Johnson County, so he's almost out the door, basically. So um, they are, oh. uh, yeah, yeah. He, he a week. To, um, so um, probably talk to Pam Wigan, probably talk to Pam. Hey, well, that's a piece of news I had not heard. Um, yeah. But I would, I, I mean, Vice Mayor Shipley, to your point, I mean, 
assuming that the meeting is typically the second Tuesday of the month, really we just have October and November. And typically around the first meeting of December, we would be talking about committees again. And so we would have um, a possibility we coordinate there. Uh, this is Sherry Reedman, City Clerk. Typically, you do that in the in January, so there'd be three meetings. Mayor Finkelstein, as always, thank you, Sherry, for keeping us straight. This is Commissioner Nanda. Do we need a motion or anything for Commissioner Larson to do that? I'm seeing a note from Sherry Reedman, City Clerk. Um, historically, you haven't made a motion to do this. It's just everyone has agreed to take certain positions, and we've. Just noted it in the minutes. Well, I do appreciate Commissioner Nond again. I do appreciate it, Commissioner Larson. Um, I, I hate to give that up, but I think that you'll be an excellent representative in that group. And I look forward to y'all continuing the good work that's happening at the CJ. So thank you. Mayor Fingal died. Okay, any other commission items, I guess? See none, see manager report. Good evening. Um, there's only two items on the city manager's report. Um, one is the agenda of the future items uh, work session. The other, I just uh, will highlight that we um, we did have a, a pretty significant North, Line, uh, North Lawrence uh, supply, water supply line uh, rupture last winter, and um, we've been looking at different options to um, to either repair or replace that. And we're making a recommendation here that we do a lining of that pipe that will be uh, both economical but also quick for us to get to that supply. And then there's a lot of information in the report that talks about kind of the long term plan and the history. Uh, or the future that we we eventually will work towards, but um, but wanted to update you on that pretty significant um, service line. Happy to answer any questions on either item. Mayor Finkel, are there questions on either of those items? So it is a public hearing item. If any member of the public would like to speak on those two items, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature, and Sherry will call upon you. There's no public comment. Mayor Finkeldye, um, bringing it back to the commission, I will just say, if, I mean, obviously the no influence line was a big issue and appreciate the work on staff and analyzing the, the issues and getting that resolved. So appreciate that. Uh, I think that takes us to calendar items. Any issues on the calendar? See nothing on the calendar. I'd look for a motion to adjourn. This is Commissioner Ananda. I move to adjourn. Commissioner Larson, second. Mayor Finkel, aye. There's a motion by Commissioner Ananda, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. Passes 5 to 0. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>